In a world filled with sharks, bears, and killer bees, one man is brave enough to stay indoors to bring you the latest in gaming, movie, and pop culture news. That man is Tom Awesome, and this is the Outside is Overrated podcast. Hello and welcome to Outside is Overrated, a podcast about gaming and nerd pop culture. Thank you so much for joining us today. I'm your host, Thompson Logic, and we've got a rager of a show for you today. We're breaking down God of War, the card game, and God of War, Ragnarok. Joining me for the discussion today are the Hobby Box, Joe Burns, Hey-o. and Telltale's number one fan, <laughs> Brian Camille. Hi. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, guys. Brian, you haven't been on the show since we talked about Horizon Forbidden West last year. First question for you, Brian. Let me straighten my papers and look at you right in your, right in your face for this. Did you play the games we're going to talk about for the show? I did. Yes! I did, and I'm the only one that completed the assignment, it sounds like, in totality. Whoa. 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 That's like, just because I didn't do, like, every post-game content and everything. What if I ask you about, you know, that one raven, you know, hidden in the crater on the left-hand side? You're not going to know. <laughs> and now I'm carrying the conversation. I'm the talent again, and it gets old. It just gets old. <laughs> Great hairline, great voice. We are, of course, referencing our Borderlands show when uh, we discussed Tales from the Borderlands, and you made it approximately four minutes into the game before bouncing off. No, dude, it was like at least 15. I didn't get to the first trophy. (laughs) But here's the deal, and and I will stand by this. Tom likes to ridicule me for gameplay versus story. If the gameplay is a slog, I am no longer interested in your story. And I'm assuming... That there's a very large uh, Venn diagram overlap between sadomasochists and those that like Telltale games. There's probably a little bit of an overlap there. Just punch yourself in the groin every time you have to go through a cutscene. You have a great time. <laughs> well, here's why I like to give you so much grief about this. Because you knew that we were going to discuss that game on the show. You knew it was coming. And the reason I asked you specifically to cover that is because it was outside of your wheelhouse. And I knew that Burns and I are both heavily cinematic players. And I figured we'd both like it. I thought it would be a tastebreaker for you. And it'd be interesting to get your outside perspective as somebody who doesn't normally enjoy that style of game. And instead, you just said, ah, I'm not going to do this. I tried. And in my defense, there is going into your comfort zone going slightly outside of your comfort zone, and just past there is panic. And it was so bad, it put me into a panic. And in my defense, too bad. <laughs> too bad. So we'll stick to things in your wheelhouse from now on. Brinsley, what's the least uh, enjoyable thing you've played for OIO? What's the like the most arduous gaming task you performed for the benefit of our listeners? I mean, probably Trek to Yomi. Um, XCOM 2 was close. And, and I think if you'd given XCOM 2 just a little bit more time, like I know that you hated the experience and maybe it would have never gotten better for you. But I I think if you had maybe had some time to put it down, just let the experience breathe a little bit and I maybe did, go back though. to it. Like I oh. started playing it like pretty early on and got I, I like I was excited about it right away at first. And as things just kept getting more and more to be a pain and you're retreading some of the same stuff and you're like strapped for time and resources, it just got less and less fun you should have uh tried not letting the enemies attack you for half of the game yeah really picks up the pace and i said all right cool i'll just sprint ahead mow down everything see what happens next yeah no i didn't buy the right dlc so did you have an issue with sunset overdrive too i did have an issue with sunset overdrive like the controls and just the movement in the game didn't jive with me got you fair enough and as somebody who's never played like tony hawk like i get that like there's 
it called back nostalgia for me because I like I like that feeling of being on the rails and uh, the combination of traversal and blasting the enemies there. These are all shows that we've talked about in a public forum. Sunset Overdrive was a Game Pass Forever segment. Uh, XCOM 2 was a main show. And Truck Yomi was a Game Pass Forever game. So if you want to hear about things that we hate, there's a couple of our worst shows. <laughs> Burnsy, very important question for you for our intro here. So now I'm going to shuffle my papers and look directly in your okay. face. Who's your Tom? Tom Selleck. He's got one of the most majestic mustaches in the face of the planet. And so, yeah, that's my Tom today. I have a beard and it's going completely gray. Yeah, but his mustache, his mustache is like, well, timeless? maybe it's not anymore, but it's like, it is timeless. It's like jet black, like probably when he first like grew it at the age of 23 or whatever. Um, yeah, he colors it. I guarantee it. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. You combine his, you combine your beard and your mustache and that's half of his mustache. <laughs> like... That's a magnitude of difference. We're not screwing around here with the physics. Like I really we feel never like, screw with physics on OIL. <laughs> I really feel like when Tom Selleck dies, his mustache detaches from his face and finds a new host. Like that's like how majestic his mustache. Yeah, so is. it's like a symbiote. It's like the yeah, Green Lantern. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. We are Selleck. <laughs> Love it. Well, we are recording the show earlier in the month than we usually do because I'm going to Florida for two weeks and then the day after I get back, I'm flying back to Florida for another week for work. So I am very thankful that you guys were able to record in early January. This is our February 2023 episode, God of War. Thank you to our sponsor, Premier Health. Check out their website at premierhealthmn.com. You can support our show at patreon.com slash OIO. We have 24 people that pledge nearly $200 a month, which helps pay for all of the media that we consume for this show, primarily, as well as advertising. You can follow us on social. Email the show at overratedpod at gmail.com. That is overratedpod at gmail.com. You can follow me at ThompsonLogicOIO on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Follow Joey at HobbyBoxBurns on Twitter and twitch.tv slash HobbyBoxBurns. Follow the show at Facebook.com slash OutsideIsOverrated. And Brian, do you just want to give out your uh, home address and social security number? Get bent, Tom. All right. Great. Great. And, and 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 that's Blaine, right? That's the address. There's Game an underscore in Blaine? there. Yeah, okay. there's an underscore in there. It's, I'll let you guess where, though. We'll keep it. We'll keep it spicy. Yeah. Well, Brian, you just turned forty. Happy birthday! Thank you so much. It's it's uh, uh, it feels weird because like you know when we're younger, everyone feels so old. Everyone feels so much more mature than us. Like I remember being in high school. Like you meet a twenty year old, like oh my god, this person's got it together. You turn forty, and I'm like, man, this is like the age where I thought my parents were just kind of like exhausted all the time, and <laughs> I have a lot more sympathy for my dad. <laughs> so it's it's it's, a, it's an interesting thing, but you know what? The alternative of not having a birthday seems infinitely worse than celebrating my fortieth. Uh, so I'll stick yeah. with that. Yeah, it's always better than the alternative. Absolutely, it is. So. Yeah, we gave you a very heartfelt gift today. Yes, heartfelt and well, just hard in general. So I really appreciate that. We're going to start our show today by discussing God of War, the card game. This game released in 2009, the uh, God of War 2019. Thank you. I was already moving on to my next sentence. Brain is like, keep it snappy. We're on a a hard time frame here. Yeah, it released in 2019, which is one year after the God of War uh, game came out, correct? Mm -hmm. 2018, yep. God of War 2018. Directed by Fel Barros and Alex Oltano. Published by Simon Games. Come on, Games. Uh, they've bounced back and forth between how to pronounce it, so whatever you say is going to work. Come on, Games. Yeah. It has a Board Game Geek rating of 6.6. Now, as I was preparing for the show, we hadn't actually played this card game yet. So 
this is going to be rough setting up how this game actually works, but essentially you play as one of the characters from the God of War game. There's Kratos and Freya and Atreus and the dwarves and Mimir. Yep. We played three of those characters and the way the game is structured is you play a series of encounters. There is one like boss fight to start with, then you choose to go to one of two different realms where you have to overcome some other objectives and then there's a final boss fight where you choose from three and as you choose one of those options you get negatives you get hindrances from the other uh, options that you did not choose so we have our characters we're trying to overcome these obstacles it is a deck building game mm -hmm. each character starts with their own deck i played as freya most of freya's shtick was healing early on she had a lot of special abilities that allowed her to mitigate damage brian you played as kratos what was your starting toolbox like he's he's the dame he's the main damage dealer and it's it's his his job is essentially to soak damage. I think he had the highest hit points out of anybody. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that was is just to uh, put down as many things as fast as he possibly can. And it's it had the least amount of strategy. And I am graced that I got a chance to play that particular character because it was pretty much C smash kill. I think and, our uh, whole team yeah. was graced in that regard. <laughs> <laughs> Very much. It helped out when you when I couldn't add up the numbers and you had explained to me six plus four is ten, not eleven. So. Uh, I appreciate the help. <laughs> yeah, you were constantly trying to cheat. Burnsy, you played as Mimir, who is a complete support character. What was the starting cool toolkit like for Mimir? Yeah, so the, the interesting thing, I mean, he's he's a severed head, right? And so all he does, he doesn't attack. He doesn't even have an activation phase. He just has what are special cards that you can play kind of at any time. And basically his whole thing is to buff the attacks or to heal or to allow like other players to draw cards and so that was a lot of what his shtick was um and then his rage ability was um using his knowledge then you could basically look at the enemy's activation cards and choose one of them to be the one that we face and then the other one goes to the bottom of the deck so you could essentially tilt the odds in our favor yep. somewhat you can choose the lesser of two evils or the more more advantageous uh enemy activation for us the first scenario that we faced, there was a big bad ogre with a ton of hit points and there were a handful of smaller enemies scattered around the board. So we jump in, I try to slaughter one of the small enemies, and it turns out you had to do so much damage to the ogre and then use the ogre to slaughter the rest of the enemies. Otherwise, they just keep respawning forever. Yeah, and so the, the interesting setup with how it works is that the, the uh, battle itself that you're taking place in or the quest that you're taking place in is a series of eight cards that are like scenes. So put together, these eight cards go like in uh, two rows of four, uh, and that basically shows you what looks a lot like or is very similar to a screenshot from the video game. And so in one of the, in one of the cards, you'll maybe have one character, so the ogre was in one, and then each of the other cards would have one of the different characters. And then at times, you would trigger something that would flip the card, which would change that part of the scene. Um, and so in that instance, when Tom defeated, uh, the one dude and it flipped over, oh, Hey, actually it says that this thing comes back to life or another baddie comes back over here. It flips back over, um, because the ogre has to kill him. And due to the fact that each, each one of the panels is, is attached to a separate rune 
And when we end a turn, you flip a card on top of the deck to kind of see which rune is affected by the change. It's cool because you could play this a couple different times and you could have very different outcomes every mm -hmm. single time because different parts of the board are changing with different forms of consequences for that. Um, they also were really neat with how they took some of the mechanics of the game, God of War 2018. You could stun an ogre, get on its back, and use it to defeat enemies, and they were using that same mechanic in the game. So yeah. you can see how that kind of had so much of, a, of an affinity for the source material. Yep. So we set up the game. We see that there's this ogre. We see the special text where you can... Get the ogre's health down, and then you can use it to attack it. Either of you think that mechanic was actually going to work and or be interesting? Because I was skeptical. I was very skeptical about this whole experience going into it and how well they could capture the theme. Yeah, I wasn't 100% sure, like, how it was all going to end up playing out. And um, and so, yeah, I was I, I maybe wasn't, like, super skeptical. I was more so interested to see how it was that they would actually make it work. And essentially, once Brian jumped right in and attacked the ogre, and if you kill the ogre before all the other enemies are dead, you lose. You lose the whole game, and you start over. And I'm like, oh, great. Brian's the Cylon. He's trying to actively <laughs> sabotage what we're doing. But it turns out you had to get the ogre down to about half health and then use the ogre to kill the other enemies. That's the only way to clear the board. And you can only do that on half of the enemy activations because there's four different runes that can come when you flip an enemy activation card, and only two of those allow you to take control of the ogre. One of them only attacks the enemies right next to the ogre. So essentially a one in four chance to get the ranged attack ability to clear the board. It was a really interesting mechanic for that first setting. And, yeah. on, and on top of that, too, you also had to have the proper cards to activate it. Because mm -hmm. at one point we were struggling with, okay, we don't even have the cards to activate the ogre on the turn when it comes up. Yeah. Um, but I had just figured since it was the center of the board and because it was pretty clear that it's like, hey, these are this is a... Uh, a parameter you have to hit and then you can start to enact on this i figured that it was going to be kind of built around it so that's mm -hmm. why i went right at it i just assumed we were supposed to and it uh it did turn into a little bit of a slog at the end when we're just like flipping cards waiting for the right rune to come up in order for it to activate the ogre to be able to attack one of the range dudes and then hope on the defense roll that we don't roll a full block so that the thing still stays alive um but the kind of added benefit of that those extra turns was that we each got to continue to add cards into our deck because basically the scene itself or the enemies are going to activate um, in a three-player game four times they activate after each player's turn and then once at the end of the round uh, and then after that starting with the first player you look at the cards that flipped up and each of them are going to be a type of card that you add to your deck then uh, so it's a really neat mechanic, and that's how you get better is by continuing to play the game. So that game actually, that first quest lasting longer, actually helped us to build our deck a bit, uh, a bit more and to hone it, I think, which maybe is what made some of the stuff after that a little bit easier. We were building our deck with very little risk. What strategies did we take to level up early on? Bernsey, as a non-attacking character, yeah. how did you try to build Mimir's deck out? So I, at first, the main focus was to get like more purple cards so it was like whatever whatever purple cards came up i would look at those and then kind of decide between them and be like what 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 supportability is going to benefit us more you want to explain what the purple cards are yeah so they're all called special cards and so they'll do a series of different things uh some of them are basically um add one plus one to an ally's attack or it'll add plus two to an ally's attack that's in your column was one of them. Um, other ones allow you to draw cards, either you or everybody in the game to draw cards. Um, and then uh, I think there's some other ones. I know some of them that are specific to Mimir 
allow you to whoever your carrier is because Mimir doesn't and he's ahead so he's attached to one of the other players um it allows you to play that and then like a plus one plus two plus three whatever bonus card to then add that damage to the attack that the carrier is doing the special cards also included healing and damage yes. mitigation cards and that was largely where i focused especially early on <coughs> brian how did you try to build out kratos it was all about damage and, and and the fact that you can use every so one thing about the game is is that when you draw up to a hand of seven at the start of every round by the time that you get to the end of the round the enemies activate that's when you discard and then you draw another set of seven so there's no point in trying to hold on to something for a long time so for me it was about as much damage as i can do or as many cards as i could add to my hand at a time mm -hmm. because particularly that add two to the hands across the group that was crazy useful yeah because now either we're doing more damage, we have more defense, and it just gave us more options with which one to deal with kind of what's going on at the board at the time. So from that opening scene, then we had to choose between traveling to two different realms. We could travel to either Alfheim or to Helheim. We read flavor text on both. The one in Helheim sounded like we were trying to get on a boat of the undead and escape, which sounded interesting. So I said, let's go there. <clears throat> and we did. Uh, in Helheim, we fought... Uh, hag who healed all the enemies she had the ability of one of the certain runes came up one of the four runes she would heal all the damage to all the enemies on the board so brian focused on killing her right away uh there are also two fires that we had to keep lit in addition to fighting the enemies there are bonfires on each end of the board that we had to spend either a melee or a ranged attack to try to keep the fires going otherwise again it's game over we can fail in the middle of this quest yeah, and so we started off pretty fast on that one. Like I think we took over, took out the first part of the scene pretty early on because it's there was three bad guys. One was the hag, and then two like lower level dudes. Once you took them out, then everything other than the bonfires flipped, and then you had it was a big dude troll that we had to fight. Yeah, a big troll that we had to fight, and um, <clears throat> it was it was it was interesting I think for how difficult the first one was and how long that one took how quickly we just sort of rolled through the second one and I think having those extra cards definitely helped but I think also just having more of a grasp on the game at that point helped too quite a bit oh absolutely I don't, that hag never even got off the ability to heal everybody mm -hmm. once we hit her so hard the first time we hit her she died so then it was clean up the minions move on to the troll decimated him and i mean it took what 15 minutes maybe max to go through that scenario like we blew that thing apart we played for roughly three hours so i'm guessing it was slightly longer than 15 minutes <laughs> but it felt like 15 it, minutes. it was moving pretty good it's interesting my early strategy was to do healing and damage mitigation the healing did not come up at all in the second phase like we barely <laughs> barely got touched yeah. in it so i was like oh well i wasted half the cards that i picked up great feeling good about this from Helheim, we move on to our final boss fight. We got to choose between trying to capture Balder, uh, taking on Sigrun, and I forget the third potential boss. Magni and Modi. Magni and Modi. We choose to try to capture Balder to right the wrongs from the first game <laughs> and try to prevent Ragnarok. Again, another interesting mechanic with the main boss here. He would constantly shift between phases. In one phase, we had to do over five damage to him to put a counter on the board basically if you did too much damage if you did more than 12 damage to him in a turn it would kill him mm -hmm. so suddenly kratos piling on all that crazy damage uh it was important to get above the threshold where he could roll armor and shrug off the damage but if we went too crazy we kill him and game over there yeah. are lots of ways to lose in this game yes and it was, it was careful it was super fun too because he had two different ways that 
hitting him would be a negative to you. One, he'd either cause a stun on you, which basically makes you have to discard a card. Um, so it just, again, it weakens your hand. The other was, if you hit him when he was in the other phase, he would then reflect the exact same amount of damage onto you. And because we were trying to, anytime you attack something, it also has an armor roll, which can be from zero all the way up to five. I rolled a lot of fives yeah. on that armor. Tom yeah. had some really rough luck. And so a lot of these times it was just mitigating all the damage we did. So we had to kind of figure out, okay, we can hit him this hard. And worst case scenario, we're still going to be able to put him into the stun state. Or, um, you know, if we do this much damage and we screw this up, he's going to die. And that's the game. So we had to be kind of careful with what our planning was. Um, and again, and if you hit him, say for eight, the beefiest character we have in our group is Kratos at 10. Yeah. Uh, that's about enough to drop him <laughs> without, yeah. without being able to mitigate some of that. Yeah. Uh, so there was some challenges and just kind of met it with that. We did a little bit of healing in this last round. I think I did one heal. I think Burns did one mm -hmm. heal. And I was really trying to get my rage up so I'd have one opportunity to shrug off damage. But I almost died. I had eight hit points. I was down to two at one point. Yeah, and how the rage works is that each character at the bottom of their character sheet will have uh, a set amount of steps to their rage meter. I think I think Freya's is the largest. She Freya had, had eight. Or was it, was it eight? I think it was eight. Okay, yeah. Um, and then Mimir's was only four, but fewer of his cards have it because he's not doing a lot of attacks. And I think a lot of attack cards that you get from the deck tend to have those in it. Um, and then, uh, Kratos had six. Yep. And then, so my ability would be basically, I instantly heal three of health, add three more to damage. So it's very much like the game. You get some life back, hit a little bit harder yeah. and then just resets. Yeah. And I talked about Mimir's and then Freya's allowed her to basically give like a shield to somebody so that they could shrug off all the damage from one attack at one point yep which we never actually used i gave it to brian in the first phase we never needed it yeah i gave it to myself in the third phase we healed up didn't need it yeah but i mean it was touch and go the last turn that we had i had my boon up so i could shrug off one damage i had a card that mitigated all damage from a second source so i mm -hmm. knew that I would at least survive the round, but I'm very thankful that it worked out. Yeah. And the mechanic for Balder to actually capture him, each time you put one of those counters on the board while he's flipping between these phases, each time you have counters on the board and you flip them over to his backside by doing the set amount of damage between 5 and 12, you. you get to roll to try to trap him. You roll that same armor die that have been vexing us the entire game. Initially, it starts off, you need to get 7, seven yeah. and you roll once for each... Uh, tracker that you have on the board so the first time we did it we couldn't possibly make yeah. it because the tracker goes up or the die goes up to five uh when you accomplish a secondary objective by taking on this big giant that's also on the board and messing with you and causing damage suddenly it drops it from a seven down to a three and we got it on the very first roll after we had dropped it down second roll because the first one i think i rolled a zero didn't i second roll was a five yeah and then the third roll was a zero again yeah. so we actually just barely made but yeah, it the first attempt <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. So we had three different scenes in this game, three vastly different encounters. Burns, this was your first time playing this game. Mm -hmm. You unboxed it for this show. What were your initial impressions of that first journey through God of War, the card game? It's cool. It, it does a really good job of being rooted in the game and how it works. And I think they did a, a good job with the base set of cards for each character to try to, to make them seem like... Um, kind of how the character plays or is portrayed within the game. Um, so I think that that's really neat. Uh, it's pretty, once we picked up the rules and kind of knew what we were doing, and especially once we got past that first battle, like we moved quite a bit faster. There's still, you still hit those spots where it's a deep think as to, okay, I got to do these things in the right order. Uh, so when do I need to play things at? 
it was really interesting also playing as Mimir, uh, um, you know, not having your own activation um, and just trying to figure out when is it that you need to drop your cards in. And then with his rage ability, what point is it going to be most important for me to be able to choose what happens to us, right? Um, and especially, like, you don't want to really do that early on because you don't know enough about what's happening on the scene yet until you activate enough things and flip enough things or see what happens with it. So in that instance, it's it's a lot like the game too, in that when you first face someone in a battle, you don't really know what they do. Once they do a few things and you have like, you run your paces through a couple of back and forth with them, you start to pick out, okay, this is the strategy I need to use. I need to block here and stuff like that. So this is a lot the same way in that you need to sort of see what how the scene plays out a little bit or try a couple of things to see what works and what doesn't. I think that's really neat. Brian, do you feel like it captured the theme of God of War, the 2018 game well? I feel like it was able to kind of draw from the resource material well enough where it was the recognizable enemies. Um, I think people kind of fit the archetype they were in the game. Um, and we happened to choose, I think, probably what I would assume is the most solid trio that we could have. Um, Brock and Sindri uh, do their own kind of thing. I think one's more defense, one's more um, attack items. And it's interesting because the two of them are one character. Yeah. So if you choose to play the dwarves, you're playing as both of them. Yeah, and we, and we didn't use them, but it was, I mean, having Joe as uh, Mimir, you helped out so much at different times throwing little points of damage here or defending or shielding. And then Tom, you for the most part being a dedicated healer, um, a dedicated healer that didn't do any healing. Mostly, I just stood around on the sideline and tried to generate rage. You absorbed <laughs> enough of the damage for me. You protected me plenty of times. But it wound up being something where that that three the three characters we chose complemented each other so yeah. well. I think it probably made it a little bit easier than it could have been. Yeah. Because um, I think with Atreus, you have more ranged attacks. So Atreus would maybe be able to do like attack things in the back row a little bit more. Um, whereas Freya is a little bit more balanced across all of those things. She kind of becomes a jack of all trades but sometimes if you don't get the right cards like you ran into especially in the first in the first uh quest um you just couldn't do anything because it's like i don't have the right things to do anything with this and i basically need to like have them attack us but there's nothing to attack us so you're kind of just shoveling your whole hand away um yeah it was a bummer when i had to throw my whole hand in the garbage yeah she felt like a druid right i mean she was really she wasn't amazing at anything but she was not bad at anything else. She yeah. was just well-rounded, so she could kind of do as we needed per situation was telling us. Yeah, the yeah. big hook was the damage mitigation. Being able to absorb some attacks for you and being able to absorb a lot of the attacks that targeted me was... Yeah. Huge. Yeah, it's yeah. really the big hook. Yeah, and I think as Mimir also, like, trying to hold on to, like, wanting to try to help out, like, the things that both of you are doing, um, because of how he works, you inherently get some added things that you can do for the person that you're attached to the carrier. Um, but just in general, throwing out the ability to add like a plus one to plus three or four to like either of the attacks. It was, it was interesting to sort of pick those battles and determine when it was that I needed to help out Tom or when I needed to help out Brian um, to try to maximize things. Or if I get a good hand, I could help both of them out maybe multiple times, depending upon what I ended up drawing. I feel like in a two-player game, being Mimir would be awful because you wouldn't yeah. have that flexibility. You wouldn't yep. be able to, like, you'd be able to help like the main player. Yeah, and that's it. Yeah, I think that would be a hindrance uh, for sure. Burnsy, who's this game for? We talk a lot on this show about like the right fit for board games. Who is God of War the card game for? Uh, so I, I definitely think it is for people that are fans of the video game because I think it has enough callbacks and it has enough um, that's that it does a, it, it captures 
what that game is like, I think, in a really interesting way. And it's, it's a game itself that's not super hard to understand how to play. Um, it takes a little bit of things to get into it. And there's some sort of edge case rule things that become questionable at times. But I think a, a, deck, a deck builder is a fairly easy concept to understand. And I was just going to add that caveat. I think it's a relatively easy game to get into if you're familiar with core deck building concepts. Yeah. Brian, you play a lot more video games than you do board games. How was this experience jumping into God of War, the card game for you? I enjoyed it a lot. Um, the only real experiments I have uh, with deck builders is um, one deck dungeon. Um, just a little bit of that. And then Dominion, if anybody's ever played that one, which is heavily involved with deck building. One deck um, dungeon is one of my favorite games. It, I love one deck dungeon. It, and this was a lot of fun because you could actually feel like yourself getting probably stronger as we were going on which is kind of you know it's the god complex of the power you know the power trip of like you know god of war is you are this brutal god and you just rip everything apart i played that character so it probably was easier to resonate <laughs> with that um but it was it was easy enough to figure out um i love the fact that there was so much variability to the board depending on what card got flipped what changed i loved how that dynamic was kind of flipping back and forth and how sometimes we'd flip something and go oh god no or sometimes we flip it and we're like oh doesn't matter we're good um and you just kind of created a little bit of a fresh feeling even as as the even as each scenario went on Mm -hmm. it wasn't really all that predictable because it it could it had so much ability to switch what was happening to you and that's not a really common thing with certain games right like a lot of things is like once you figure out the core mechanics just go Um, but this one inherently had a little bit of uh, a randomness so Mm -hmm. i am curious um in the long run if this is a game that you ended up playing a dozen plus times, if at some point it's the replayability really falls off. Um, Cause I wonder if how many times you go back to say Helheim or fight the ogre, um, like you kind of know what you have to do with the ogre the next time you play against him. Right. Yep. And so then does that lessen the experience at all? Because I think it's it's definitely more fun when you don't know what you're doing to approach it. Um, but then going back the next time, and I guess if you're a different character, it adds some some nuances to what you're doing and a different makeup of people adds some nuances as well. How much variability is there to the scenes? Because I didn't see when you were setting up the path that we can go. There's the one boss, the two realms, the three like big bosses. How many different options yeah. are there for each of those? I believe there are... It's seven or eight different quests, and then there's four different bosses, like main bosses at the top. And so you will always draw three and do two of the quests, and then there's one of the four bosses. You'll get three of the bosses and fight one of them. So, I mean, there's enough like permutations there that there would be replayability with it, and having a different one first would maybe impact how much harder that is compared to having something second. Like... With just the base decks to start with, Helheim maybe would have been a lot more difficult as a starting one than like the Ogre was. Because, you know, once we took care of a few things, it was really just marking time and tell and trying to set up the finish, you know. And once we got to the Ogre, if we did it a second time, we would inherently know, let's drive down the damage on everything else real quick so it's low. Yeah. Because some of those, if you killed it and the Ogre was still, uh, and, the, and the Ogre wasn't the one that killed the enemy, they come back fresh as a daisy anyways. Yeah. So you, we would know drive down the damage on everything, and then the ogre lets him wipe it out. I think we would have gotten through that a lot faster. Mm-hmm. But it also, like, the, the fact that that kind of meta knowledge would make it so much easier made me think of a little bit of, like, Bloodborne, 
when we had played that board game oh, yeah. as a group, we we're like, hey, look, had we known that this would have been our objective on the second one, yeah. we would have had to play the first one entirely different just to get through it. Yeah. So I think sometimes you kind of need that. And with how the Bloodborne game works, it probably is built in the the uh, belief and the love of, oh, die learn repeat yeah um, and i'm pretty sure the board game took that exactly from the game yeah. itself and i think so i'm trying to think of this like if we played this again i bet you we could get through all three portions of the game in like two hours um, i think that's pretty safe yeah the, the box is a complete liar saying 45 to 60 minutes for a game i don't know like you'd have to just be really hammering through it to try to get through the entire game, I think, in, in 45 minutes. Do you think that's marketing being disconnected from the actual product that they're putting out there? Do you think that's dishonesty on the part of the company of Simon Games so publishing many, this? So many games in general are so far off on that that a lot of people don't even really pay attention to them. Yeah, um, I honestly pay no attention to it's so variable. time in the box. It's so variable because the more players you have, I think, the longer sometimes things take because there's more thoughts that are happening in between things. Um, but I think some of the scenes would probably take a little bit longer if you're playing solo or two players because you're just going through cards a lot more. Um, I don't know. I, I don't know how that falls down. If there's some sort of metric where with playtesting, they take an average of things to figure that out. I'm, I'm not 100% sure exactly how they ever really arrive to those numbers. I just know that pretty much every company is like wrong like, <laughs> when risk tells you it's 35 minutes a match it's like wait a minute wait a minute wait a minute it's the word years i think years yeah. should have been on there yeah i think that this game we neglected to mention that this is a fully cooperative game we're all working oh, yeah. together on all of the scenes i Tom struggled with that <laughs> disagree i think this is a great game to bring on new players like i can mm -hmm. see this as something that phoenix would play with me because i could give her the framework and we could explore it together like i think that this game would be awesome for new players but i do think there is a shelf life because there's only so many times you can go to hellheim you're only surprised once yep yeah and i think you could maybe if you're playing with all new players um you can kind of just take a back seat and allow them to make the decisions on what to attack and stuff um, I can't do that. Like, if I know the most efficient path, I'm like, maybe we should do this. <laughs> for, any, for anyone who's ever watched uh, uh, a niece, a nephew, a child uh, play like Mario Brothers 1, and you're ready to rip the controller out of their hands because you're doing it wrong. Yeah, that's that's a legit beef. <laughs> yeah. I think I also neglected to mention this game as a board game geek rating of 6.6. .6. You mentioned it earlier. Did yeah. I? Okay. Seems low. This is a fun game. Maybe it doesn't have the most replayability, but playing it once, I really want to play it again. I want to play as the other characters. Yeah. Burns, who would you play as in the next playthrough? Um, I mean, I'd definitely mix it up. I did really enjoy playing as Mimir. Um, I tend to... But you're to... also a facilitator. You like yeah. helping other people thrive. Right, and I also... I do I do actually enjoy playing support characters a lot in games like this. Um. I don't know. It's just an interesting way to uh, interface with a game, I think, sometimes. Uh, I, I would be interested in trying Brock and Sindri and trying to figure out how, the, how to make them work. You have two characters, but they both have lower, a little bit lower health. Um, and so, like, trying to balance out, like, where you need each of them to optimize who's doing what, um, I think seems like it would be an interesting an interesting way to, to, uh, or to play the game. Brian, what about you? Who would you be next time? Kratos always and forever? Uh, he, 
He took the least amount of thought. That was great. <laughs> um, I, I think the dwarves would be fun to try. I want to see what Atreus would do, right? Because if if we have a lot of the archetypes sort of covered, right? We've got support with the dwarves, support with Mimir. We've got essentially Jack of all trades healing um, with Freya, damage dealing with Kratos. I want to know where Atreus fits in that. Like, is he a little bit more of the hybrid damage dealing and what? Like, I I would assume he's got to be more damage-based in some capacity mm-hmm. based on how the other ones are set out. But I don't know what that other that other branch Aspect that he is. has because I'd be interested to find out exactly what that is and how would that complement the group. So all new characters in our second playthrough. <laughs> Sounds good. Because who would you do? Um, Maybe Atreus. It, it would depend on the rest of the composition. Because yeah. it would be fun to be Kratos and just worry about the biggest number possible. It would uh-huh. be fun to play as the dwarves with their combination. I could see myself doing Mimira's support, but it would, I would probably let the other players select their characters first and then fill and then in. Fill in after that. Yeah, Freya was fun. I'd like to be Freya again. I'd focus more on the damage mitigation and less on the healing because I think... <laughs> Everyone can take the healing, and we can all benefit from that. Yeah. Brian and I are on completely different planets when we sneeze. Brian just sneezed twice, three yes, times. Yes, like a mouse. Yeah, very much like <laughs> a mouse. I used to scare the girl in the office next to me at work when I sneeze. So thought you men, like big, powerful sneezes. I think I think it's a dad sneeze thing because my father still, it scares me when he sneezes because I assume that either this is the aneurysm I've been waiting for or like <laughs> he's having an exorcism and it's leaving quickly because like it's, it's savage. Like my father sneezes in a savage way. That's the best way I can articulate it. Yeah. Once in college, I sneezed during an econ lecture and like the professor stopped and he looked at me. He's like, may I proceed? And uh, sitting next to one of my buddies, and we're walking back after class, he's like, I would have said God bless you, but it sounded like you were just screaming. (laughs) (laughs) Guys, I just started this new D&D campaign, and I'm really excited. I've made this character. uh, It's not a low-level character. He's kind of experienced already. He's established in the world. He makes pretty good money, but he lives in the Arctic tundra, and he's just too stubborn and cheap to buy a snowblower. And so now my character's back is always hurting because it never stops snowing in the tundra. Do you know anyone who can help me and my character with our sore back? I mean, I think you should check out Premier Health. They have solutions for back pain, neck pain, car accident, board game-related injuries, including shoveling snow in a weird world and more. I suggest seeing Dr. Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota. And to learn more, you can go to PremierHealthMN.com. Brian, anything you'd like to add about our friends at Premier Health? I would say, uh, in the one serious thing I'll say about it for right now, folks, uh, for all of you listening in Minnesota, this has absolutely been one of the rougher winters right now we've already had for snowfall. Um, do me a favor, be safe. The most pressure you can have on a lumbar disc is to compress and twist, which if you visualize that mentally, that is snow shoveling. Um, and even in this last storm, I've had three patients with disc herniations come in from just the last storms. When it's wet, when it's heavy, please be smarter with what you do. And if somebody needs to see a chiropractor in Minnesota or in the Twin Cities specifically, how can they find Dr. Brian? Um, I would recommend Dr. Brian or Dr. Kelsey. It's easy enough because they have the same last name. So that's Camille. Are they brother and sister? Uh, maybe. I don't know. <laughs> I try not to ask myself that much. Um, so that is uh, Dr. Camille, uh, the he Camille. 
We'll call. Uh, he is at uh, in the Golden Valley office, and then we have Sheik Camille, who's located in the Coon Rapids office. Um, so if anything does happen, either one is more than well enough equipped to help you out. You can find their website at premierhealthmn.com. That's premierhealthmn.com. One more question for you along this line, Brian. Like, when should someone come in and see you? Like, is it just sore back? Is it excruciating pain? Like, at what point should someone seek help? That's a good question. Um, what I would tell most people is, if you're not sure what to do after an injury, ice first. Um, if we put heat on something that's inflamed, it's like gas on a fire, so you can actually make it worse. So we put an ice source on, whether that's a bag of ice, uh, an ice pack, Fall into the snowbank. Whatever you got to do. Ice, uh, snow angel, what do you got to do? Uh, so 20 minutes on, take it off. Don't exceed 20, otherwise it will make it worse. But if this is something where you have a consistent pain for more than a week, it's time to have it looked at. If we can get it to abate within three to four days, keep going the right way with it, great. You can probably handle it at home. But once we get to a week, probably time to get checked out. Yeah, and, and you've had many patients that have said you're a master abater. So, you know... It, that's that's the place to go. It's always tough when they're giving you a firm handshake and looking you deep in the eyes when they say it. Um, <laughs> but I appreciate the compliments. So, thank you. Sorry, one more question along these lines, and we can cut it if it's not germane. But what does it cost to like come in and see you if someone hurts themselves shoveling? So, what I would say is um, we do a, a new patient um, special for patients coming in. Um, in fact, actually, we'll even do one step past that. If you are listening to this, if it is something you're thinking about, if you come in and you mention outside is overrated uh, during uh, your first day, we'll do your exam and x-rays for free. Um, if you Whether it's one x-ray, whether it's six, if it's not been done, we're going to be thorough. Um, but we're happy to do that at no cost, and then we'll cover the results because patients want to care about really four things. What is it? Do you treat it? How long is it going to take? What's going to cost? I care about am, what's wrong with you. That's day one. What the hell is wrong with you is the first thought. Thought two is am I the right physician to help you because I honestly don't know. So if it looks like it's a chiropractic problem, great. We'll take those extra steps. We'll get the diagnostics done. But if I think a physical therapist, a neurologist, a medical doctor is a better fit for the symptoms, I'm going to help you find the right place. And that is Dr. Brian Camille in Golden Valley, Minnesota, or Dr. Kelsey Camille in Coon Rapids, Minnesota. One more time on the website, PremierHealthMN is in Minnesota.com. Next up, we're going to play Two Truths and a Lie. Brian, take it away. And uh, I had a little bit of a problem with that. So my computer uh, kind of exploded on me yesterday. Um, actually, no, two days ago. Uh, and because I'm someone that waits till last minute panic has inspired him to do his work, um, I don't have a game for us to play. Oh, that sounds like a lot of excuses. So yeah. this game was no truths and all lies. Yeah, yeah, that's that's how it works. No truths and all excuses. But this is <laughs> truly something that I look forward to every time that you're on the show, Ryan. You do a masterful job of it. So maybe what we'll do is we'll record it at some point in the future. Maybe we can jump online and record it. And we'll get two truths and a lie for God of War at some point in the feed. Maybe we'll attach it on to next month's show. Maybe we'll just dump it into the feed as like a bonus thing. But like... I desperately want to play Two Truths and a Lie about Kratos and his friends. I'm down for that. And then, too, by the way, and, and if in the future, if you if you want to throw any of this stuff onto an episode I'm not even on, I know we did it for the Sherlock one. And it was still fun just to come up with that, come in, do the bit, and go. So um, it is fun to do, but you guys are getting a lot smarter with how I word things. You're looking for meta tendencies at this point. So now, now we're having to add layers to it. Uh, but it's, it's been fun. It's always fun to watch you guys argue and then watch Tom inevitably fall into the right answer somehow. Yeah, I'm pretty sure I've never lost. I'm, uh, well, I have a spotless track record. Half the time he just like listens to what Phoenix says. 
and then goes with her. Half so. the time he has the wrong logic and he gets there and it's still the right answer. But I'm like, the thing that you based your entire thought process of is incorrect. And he still showed, it's like Mr. Bean does two truths and a lie. <laughs> well, I'll say this about two truths and a lie. It has this similarity to content marketing, which is my profession. Like it's a results driven business. It doesn't matter how you got there. It matters the final product and that the final product is right. He can say that because he's got two daughters. It's how he applies it to all aspects of his life. Yeah, I'm very <laughs> thorough with my lovemaking. <laughs> For the second half of the show, we're breaking down God of War Ragnarok, a PlayStation exclusive developed by Sony Santa Monica. We all played the original game from 2018. Let's start with what our level of excitement was and expectations heading into this game. Burns, we'll start with you. You had this game at launch. It took you a little while to get into it. Was that wanting to be fresh for the show? Was that uh, competing priorities? No, so, I mean, I was super excited to play the game um, and really interested to see what it was. But I was definitely, like, I was a little trepidatious about whether it would live up to, like, what I, what, how much I enjoyed God of War 2018. I mean, like we talked about it whenever, whichever episode that was where you wanted us to say what our favorite game was from the PS4 generation. And that was I, uh, end of the console generations, I believe, December 2021. Yeah, and I surprised you when I said that it was God of War because um, that game just, it, it, it did so much. And it was such an interesting story and just such a changeover for what Kratos used to be and what Kratos, like, was now and it was just one of those things where it was it it was worrying to me a little bit as to whether that would be able to carry on like forward in a throughout a whole nother game with that can you think of another game where you had that sense of dread with these like high expectations and whether or not it would meet them like do you get the same kind of tingle about final fantasy 14 expansions or you just know they're gonna Um. knock it out of the park so, yeah, not really dread with Final Fantasy. Final Fantasy 15, going into 15, I had dread because I was worried about where the series had been at that point. And, uh, you know, just the fact that there was all this weird narrative in other places um, and, and what was the best way to navigate that. In the end, I ended up loving that game. Um, and so with this one, I, I jumped into it and started doing some of the combat um, and got a little frustrated with just some of the stuff. And so I, I kind of bounced off it a little bit and it was just sort of like, okay, if I'm going to play this game, I'm going to try to take it in like small doses and not like just binge the crap out of it. And so I put it down. I, I jumped back in. Uh, I think it was like a couple weeks later um, and played like a little bit. And I was like, okay, that was a good dose. Um, and then, um, you know, played a little bit more. Um, I think the next night after that, and then that was when we were like, hey, we're going to record on January 6th or what? Yeah, 6th, 7th. Yeah, generally so you'd like, have like another seven to nine days before we had to record. But because of my month yeah. in Florida, we had to adjust our production schedule. Yeah. A and bit. so then I was like, okay, well, we're going to have to really push on this. And so, so yeah. So you wound up binging the crap out of it over the last week. Yes. Did you um, enjoy that experience? Actually, yes. Uh, I. And, and so I, I wanted to try to play through the game on hard uh, because I've I, I, I've been enjoying like giving myself that extra challenge. And I feel like having that challenge pushes me to try more things that are in the systems of the game as opposed to just relying on, OK, heavy, heavy, light, 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 heavy, heavy. This all works. I just keep doing the same thing over and over and over again. Um, and so but I think the game did a good enough job once I even backed it down off of that because it was, 
it was just really hard. Some of the battles I had to restart many times and it was going to take me way too long to try to finish. I had to, I went from give me balanced, which was below hard up to hard Yeah, because exactly what you said, you yeah. could seriously just spam R1, which is quick attack with the ax to go through almost any situation and boss fight. It was, yeah. it was almost mindless. So it Early forced game, yeah. you. Yeah. You had to use mechanics to keep yourself alive. Yeah. I struggled a lot on uh, give me balance. <laughs> I found this game, the combat in this game to be very challenging. Brian, we got this game at launch, and you, I believe, had platinumed it before I even started. And I didn't, I knew that this was going to be a longer game, and I tried to hit it right from the get go. You dove headfirst into this game, and you dove deep. Why were you so excited for God of War Ragnarok? So, a God of War 2018. Um, to echo Joe, I mean, it was it was such a different step in the direction um, that they could have gone with Kratos. Kratos had been a fairly flat, mm-hmm. angry man character for you know three games. But the one thing about sounds like just your type is it really does bald and barrel chested, um, just like my wife. So the the part that's super interesting was that the thing about even with the old games, the production value for Santa Monica Studios has always been super high. Mm-hmm. Always they they put everything into a game. They do a beautiful job. Um, they really decided to make a narrative that was actually so much more deep than anything that they had ever done before. And the production quality was still there. And, and I, I had, speaking of my beautiful wife, um, I had some help uh, with diving into it so fast because actually God of War 2018 is one of her favorite stories of any medium period. She just loves that story. Um, so we had actually played through God of War 1 again prior to this coming out or God of War 2018. Um, and then, so the second Ragnarok came out, she's like, I want the story. Like we get home from work. Hey, will you please play? Hey, I'll make dinner. Please play. So, I mean, it's, it's, she just facilitates me just sitting in front of the TV and going there. And it was, it was awesome because of it. Um, I'm not disappointed by this game in any way, as far as what the end result was. I think it's a meaningful and deep experience. There's still a lot of ties where they built heavily off the foundation from the prior game. And I think they probably could have been more risky in certain ways. Um, but that doesn't mean that they didn't kind of push the envelope for where the franchise has been going. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is the first game that I have platinum, and I can't even tell you how long. I'm not a gamer that does completionist stuff. I don't usually do that. Um, and I just I didn't want to stop playing. That was mm-hmm. that was the thing. I, I was killing Odin's Ravens because I just didn't want to be done with it yet. And then eventually you do the final thing and it's like, well, here, here I am. And now I'm waiting for new game plus. Those Ravens that fly around though, and you have to hit them while they're looping. They can kick rocks. Yeah, they pretty frustrating. Once, once you get another, uh, there's another weapon that gets unlocked at some point that made that so much easier. Cause it's like throwing a missile That's um, true, I guess. and then they're just dead. Yeah. Suck on that Ravens. I, I came into this game in a weird place because 2018 was a masterpiece and I knew that it would be hard for it to achieve that bar. And I didn't want to expect that bar because 2018 caught me off guard. It was just an amazing experience. I didn't play for the podcast, so I got to meander around at my heart's content and enjoy it how I wanted to. We'll talk about that just a little bit later. So I, I came in trying to temper my expectations and not, I didn't want to expect this to be the greatest game on the PlayStation five because I wanted to be able to evaluate it for what it was. Let's start by breaking down different aspects of this game. We're going to talk about the story of this game. Uh, For the purpose of this discussion, we're going to be spoiler-free until the very end. We'll give a very clear spoiler disclaimer. So we're not going to ruin any of the major 
uh, points of this story. But I wanted to start with my main takeaway from the story was that the cast was really strong. Like, mm-hmm. there's a whole host of characters, and they're all really interesting and really well fleshed out. Bernsey, I know that you loved this story. Where does it rank amongst the best stories in video games? Like, yeah. is it on that top tier? Is it a tier below? Where Where does the story of God of War Ragnarok come yeah, in? I, I mean, I think the story, this story is by far one of the best stories. Um, and just presentations of a story that's been in a video game. Now, I always have to throw the caveat in there that because a lot of people will say like Last of Us and Last of Us Part Two, uh, depending upon your thoughts, are like far high and above like anything else that's been in video games. I haven't gotten through those yet. Um, I didn't think Last of Us was very fun. I didn't get very far into it. I so I mean, uh, quick side note then, uh, like. Last of Us, I actually was really enjoying it, and then I was playing it on PS3, and my PS3 continuously froze after playing the game for 45 seconds. <laughs> um, and then I eventually bought it on PS4. Actually, I bought a PS3 so I could play it, never got back to it, um, then bought it on PS4 and never really got back into it. Um, and now that the series is coming out in like a week, um, I'm probably going to watch the series first and then go back and play the game. And that'll yeah. be an interesting way to experience it, I feel like. Me too. And we saw a trailer for it. And Phoenix is like, are you really sure you're okay with spoiling it? I'm like, I didn't really enjoy the game. So yeah, I want to yeah. know what happens. Like, I'm interested to experience this this way. And then maybe I'll go back to it. But the, the, the amount of thought of just what they wanted to do with each of the characters, I think, going into this game... And how they like pick up off of where they left off from the previous game. And just the development of what happens with them throughout the game. Um, and it's the characters that are new to this game. The characters that existed in the previous game and that carried over into this game. And sometimes even adversaries from the previous game that then come into this game as kind of bit characters at times. Are just... There's just always some sort of a interesting touch point that you get with those characters and it's all done with just like a level of care and thought about them that i think goes above and beyond how a lot of other video games tend to approach story um and i think that is one of the things that sets it apart from a lot of the other pieces and i know we'll talk about the characters later and how much we um like or dislike maybe some of them um but i i just think you know, they, they did so much with everyone in there and everything was done with intent and to like carry things forward. And I think that is, that is just, that, that is why it is like top tier in video games. So if we imagine a slider on one end of the slider is story on the other end of the slider is gameplay. Brian, you are 100% gameplay. Did you just skip every cutscene in this game and just burn through from one fight to the next? I thought it was weird that Kratos would go fight the Greek gods again. I just, I don't know. I just, I felt like that was overdone. Um, I think I saw there was a fight with Sonic at one point. Um, I don't know. I just the hit Hedgehog X. or the Burger franchise? Could have been both. I don't know. It, was yeah. a, it was, looked like a lightning bolt. could have been either. Um, I don't know. Uh, I, I feel like this... These games are a really beautiful marriage between gameplay and story. Um, it's the, the gameplay is so fun that you can't help but keep pushing it forward. And then you keep getting rewarded with more of these bits from the story as you, you make that progress. Uh, to, to kind of add on to what Joe said, 
there's no characters that are wasted and to be honest it's really lean there's not a ton of fluff that they added which makes it uh, which makes it a little bit more um uh, catchy to me it pulls me in a little bit more um there's a little no, bit more engaging much more engaging and there's, there's like no jar jar banks character everybody had their own feel to it um and they really complement each other well it's interesting comparing this to our conversation about Far Cry 6, which I believe was January of last year's episode of OIL. You loathed the size of the cast in that game. And you're like, yeah, well, someone died. Don't care. There's a million other people to replace them. Yeah, that's and that's where we start to look at quantity versus quality, right? Like everybody, oh, I'm a, you know, I'm another rebel and I'm mad at the president and I'm not going to join you because I've got my own agenda. Oh, we're best friends now. Thanks for helping me out. Let's go kill the president. It just, it was the same shtick every single time. And maybe they swapped out the mustache or the hair color for the person you were talking to. It didn't change much. Um, with God of War, everybody has got their own past pain. And due to the prior game, you're well-versed in what everyone's trauma was in, in the in the previous storyline. And then that motivates each of them differently for what they want the outcome to be. Some people have an outcome that winds up, you know, meeting at the road somewhere down the way. And they're like, hey, we want the same thing. There's others that don't. And what we start to find out is, is that some of these decisions are going to lead to horrible, horrible outcomes. But it winds up being, is it worth, is this... Is this decision, is this action worth where we're going to get to here in the end? Because it, it could mean the ex the destruction of all existence. And they, they play with some pretty heavy tones the whole way through that whole time. And pulling on one of those threads, in the first game, this is a spoiler. If you haven't played God of War from 2018, but it's a four-year-old game, this is a major plot point that connects the two games. But in the first game, in God of War 2018, Atreus kills... Freya's son, Balder, who is a uh, Norse god. So in the opening of God of War Ragnarok, Fre Freya is constantly popping up and trying to kill Kratos, just over and over and over again. And eventually, Kratos winds up getting coerced into helping Freya break a spell that is keeping her caught in Midgard. And Freya maybe doesn't forgive Kratos, but she realizes that they're on the same path. Like, they're heading towards the same endpoint. And so she starts working with the uh, Kratos family again. Does Kratos have a last name? I think he's just Kratos. Just, yeah, just Kratos. Kratos. And it's, that was one of the interesting ways that they realized they had a similar endpoint. And so they started going down the path together. They didn't always, they weren't always in lockstep. Occasionally Freya went to do her own thing, but it was masterful the way that they pulled in different threads and occasionally mixed up the parties. And it was cool just for the fact that, particularly with that relationship there, it's amazing how. Kratos is able to explain it from his position, but even at this point now, he, he talks about how he reflects and how he would have done it a different way because he's like, look, this wasn't mine to do. It just wasn't. Um, and it's considering how, again, how that character started in God of War 2018 yes. to even have a moment where it, he, the character reflects and yep. maybe would say, hey, I made an error. Yep. Like that just shows how much more of a round character that he used to be than, than, he, than he used to be, excuse me. So... Let's say we go back in time and we grab Brian as he's playing the very first God of War game and just like, yeah, boobs, I'm boning these people on this bed and then I'm tearing the crap out of all these guys. I killed this guy. This is Joe's artistic interpretation of me at 20 something. This is not reality. Just so we're clear. So and I continue. We grab you and drag you and show you that scene where Kratos is talking to Freya um, and like like we're getting like this revel realization that he's having 
um, and his apology to her. And like how much of like a shock would that be that this character had turned into what it, from what it was to what it is now? Would 20-year-old us care? Like would 20-year-old <laughs> us appreciate the gravity of Kratos realizing that he made a mistake and that that had consequences towards another person? Like I can't imagine myself in my young 20s caring. I'd be like, ah, whatever. Give me some more people to kill. <laughs> part of it's that and part of it, I mean, the initial game is – they tried to make an absolute injection of a power trip. That's what they did, right? Everything was on a huge scale. It was you against these gigantic odds, these gigantic enemies, all this kind of stuff. And it was just the rage that dragged him through, which I guess, you know, it's like if you like the anti-hero, if you like Punisher and stuff like that, that's mm-hmm. that's a viable thing. But, like, it, it is such a stark difference. It'd be like watching, you know, going to the original, and I'd be like watching this, you know, Ragnarok going, why am I watching Pride and Prejudice? What is this? Well, I don't yeah. care. I, I don't care. Um, but it's, mm. you actually start to care about the characters. That's, yeah. that's the thing, right? That's, I, I will always say this, uh, JK Rowling's, to be honest, I think her writing is exquisitely juvenile. I think she's a poor writer. Um, but at the same time, she was able to write something that made you care about the character. Mm-hmm. She made them relatable enough where it's just, do you guys know the term reflecting and validating? Have you ever heard that term? Nope. Okay. So uh, this is something it's really good to do for just, uh, it's a communication skill set, right? It's like when your partner's talking to you and they're telling you about something they're struggling with. And what you do is you basically- Mock them? Yes. Put you them mock down. them. Yeah. Call them a baby. Um, <laughs> wah, swallow, wah. swallow those feelings. And- Get yep. good. Yeah. Be, be a man. <laughs> um, but it's, it's that idea of being able to listen to what somebody says, speak it back to them in your own words, showing you understand it, but then- uh, it, it's that understanding of, hey, like, where's a spot in my life where I have felt like this? And that's what makes humans connect. That's why pain can connect people, because you understand that struggle. And if you can connect with those pain points, it's it's a really great way to bring people closer to a character. And with Kratos, man, like, he is nothing but regret, right? Mm-hmm. Like, particularly in 2018, he is nothing but regret. But he finds a relationship with his son. He finds a second family, yeah. essentially. Like, again... And then from there, he just moves forward. And it's the way that this dysfunctional family operates and where they're trying to get to and how they have to overcome each other. Um, God, it's fun. Yeah. Bernsey, we like to rely on you for how stories work because of your overall knowledge of literature and storytelling. What do you think of the way that they pulled various threads in this game? Do they do a good job of matching the different characters and their different objectives and the different like pieces of the puzzle? Yeah, I, I think that's another strong suit of it is that... So, like, the first game, there's times where you have other characters along with Kratos, but it's really just you're following Kratos' thread through that entire game. You know, most of the time, Atreus is with him. Sometimes it's Brocker Sindri... Um, sometimes it was Freya, but mostly it was Atreus, right? Um, and it's really just sort of centered in on that one focus, that one focal point kind of as you go through the game. Uh, the interesting thing with Ragnarok is how you're bouncing around between a couple of different focal points as the game goes on. You know, so you're following Kratos through chunks of it. And I don't think this is a spoiler. I think people would kind of assume at this point that you play through parts of the game as Atreus. And, um, and, and the two of them, you know, kind of are separated at times and doing different things. And it's, I think what's interesting that they do with this is, is two different things. One thing they do is with these different pairings of characters, um, 
they allow you to see other aspects of the story from different characters' perspectives or complete different characters' perspectives that you weren't expecting to understand. It's particularly when sometimes with you, if you're traveling with Freya or if you're traveling with Atreus, you're having different levels of conversations. You'll hear how Kratos explains things to his son, but then when he talks to Freya, he explains why he does it in that manner. Yeah. It, it really helps you kind of understand the why behind what he's doing. Yeah. Yeah, and then in scenes where you're following around as Atreus, you kind of understand why he's doing what he's doing. Because he's a dumb kid and he's almost unbearable. He's, I, I, I don't know. I think that's a very strong, that's a very strong <laughs> phraseology for it. But, I, you know, he's trying, I mean, he doesn't have a lot of experience, right? I mean, Kratos has all this experience and granted a lot of his experience was doing the wrong thing and doing the wrong thing very spectacularly well. Um, you know, or doing the wrong thing without any care of what the negative impacts are. Um, and he hasn't been able to really learn from that. And so he, to some extent, has to make his own mistakes in order to figure out how he needs to act, right? And I think all Kratos tries to do is to sort of get him to understand, you know, how he's made all these mistakes and he doesn't want that life for Atreus, right? And it's interesting. They said they set that up perfectly with just an offhand remark by Mimir early on in the game. Mimir says something to the effect of, "He's got to have the freedom. Atreus has got to be have the freedom to make his own mistakes. Like he's mm-hmm. gonna, he's got to live life, and he's got to learn by learn the stove is hot by touching it from time to time." Yeah, pretty much. It's weird to hear Mimir talk about stoves. I, real quick, I loved when Kratos is talking to Atreus about what it was like to grow up a Spartan and how it shaped how he views things so often. Yeah, and he's like, "Dad, you're." Kratos or dad or father, whatever he calls him. He's like, do you think that I, I could have, do you think that I would have been strong enough to do it? He's like, it's not if you would have been strong enough. He's like, you shouldn't have had to. Yeah. And I love the fact that that's kind of the way that he breaks it down. It's like, Hey, this is the way that I, that happened to me. I would never wish this on you. Yeah. I, it, there's so many good, there's so many good moments and so many different, different pieces of dialogue as you're traversing through the world. Like in the first game, they did a lot of it where it was like Mimir telling a story as you're boating around through things. And in this game, they, they don't, like, rely just on that a lot of the time. Um, they do a lot more of, like, actual contextual dialogue conversations between the people that are traveling together at that point. And this is probably a technical masterpiece because, like, you can be having a conversation between Atreus and Kratos as you're doing something. And then, like, you see a shrine and you're like, oh, I got to light these things on fire real quick. And Atreus will stop his story wherever yeah. it is and they'll pick it up later. They did that a little bit in the first game, but it's just <clears throat> masterful how they're able to stop any of their dialogue see, when you see something shiny. It's I, always smooth. Yeah. I never got a lot of that because if I knew I was getting close to shore and someone was telling a story, I stop where I'm at and listen to it finish. I would never stop. Yeah. I was constantly pursuing Always. the end line in this game. Always stop to listen to this because I, I want to hear the end of it. I figure they'll get back to it, but I don't know that. But one of the other interesting things I think they did with this, when you have kind of these split perspectives going through the game at times, is there's um, some story bits that you get when earlier on in the game, Atreus and um, Sindri are out doing something together. And then, like, you know that going forward, and then there's a scene where Brock decides he's going to go do something, and Sindri continuously is trying to, like, interject himself. And even, like, shows up when Kratos and Freya are traveling through, like, a dungeon area, 
And it's just like, you know, you've got to let me go with you. And he's like, no, Brock is going with me. Uh, um, and, and it's like, we know why that's happening. Kratos doesn't know why that's happening. And then you go through everything with with Brock and Kratos. And like that, I, that kind of comes to its head. And you see how like the characters react in that situation. And it's not just that you get a little bit of an understanding about Brock more from that situation, but you also get like this tremendous amount of growth from Kratos as to how he handles the situation and how he tries to make Brock feel better about the situation as he goes through it. And I think that's just amazing writing. And then how that all kind of culminates with some of the things later on in the game. It's just so interesting how that one little through line, like just continued to kind of come back up at points and became a main focus at points and then fell back. It's just so, it's just so fascinating how they did that. And they do that with other things that was most pronounced, I think with this. Um, But that was just like masterful, I think. And sometimes they break it up with silly little filler distractions. Like there's a moment in the Kratos and Brock sequence that you're talking about where you have to go and chop some rocks. Mm-hmm. Jerry's like, yeah, I need those uh, purple rocks. All right, now give me those other rocks. And you have to go over and hit R2 a couple of times. And like one of my few knocks in this game is there's some dumb little filler thing that just didn't need to exist. You can have actually underneath the settings, you can have the game auto complete those for you. Oh, yeah. Brian's great at the cheater accessibility. Absolutely. Options. I am yeah. not wasting my time. Yeah, auto-loot everything. <laughs> and, uh... I don't know. Like, it's it's all part of building that scene, right? And I guess, you know, maybe I'm in the minority here. Um, I don't have to always be in madcap, frantic action, combat things. Like, sometimes interacting with a scene by just doing something like that. Like, okay, Brock wants me to harvest this stone from him from this deposit. I'll go grab it while he's talking to me and give it back to him. And then, you know, okay, help me with this other thing. Like, it's all a part of building the scene and being a part of that instead of, I mean, you could just sit there and watch Brock go do those things or they just don't include that. Or make it a cutscene. I would have preferred a cutscene. Yeah, I don't know. I just, I think it's, I, I, I find it, I find it interesting that you're doing these menial things with someone who usually is using his axe to just cleave things in two. Like, I think that's that's funny. Or that's It's just interesting that, okay, you know, he's not just using his axe to cut Draugr in half and to slice the hat, head off of something. Like, yeah, he's going to chop into this into this freaking deposit and give this mineral to Brock to finish doing what he's doing, you know? I, I, I think that's interesting, and it's, it's a neat little change of pace. I don't know. I think it also allows the player to have their own little impression on the scene don't itself, right? Don't tell me you like chopping the rocks. I, I'm not saying that I did, but I'm saying that as a cutscene, that really wouldn't work to me. And watching Brock do it would be more boring, but it lets you interact in that moment with the scene. That's the thing. Like, it doesn't. Sometimes cutscenes can take us out of the moment, right? That's how it can be. Sometimes when one of the characters doing something, just talking to us as we stand there, that can take us out of a moment. It lets you have that interaction. And interaction is what this game's all about interacting with other people. Yeah. And I say, blah. I had a stretch of over 20 hours between Odin encounters, between when Thor and Odin first come knocking on the door in the very beginning of the game. It uh-huh. was over 20 hours, including that scene. Until I saw Odin and he really got into like the meat of the story. I'm like, could have done without chopping rocks. I could have used more Norse gods. Yeah, but that was even after that scene happened. So, I like a lot of the things that you're doing in between there is trying to figure out like, I don't know. 
there's lots of stuff that's happening in the story, I think, between those points. The antagonist doesn't always have to be front of mind, front and center with every single thing that happens. Especially when there's other conflict happening, you know, between Kratos and Atreus, um, Kratos and Freya. Like, there's lots of things that had to be resolved to get to the point where that other stuff could happen, I feel like. So, on that thought process, because we've, we've been discussing all these characters. If you've not played the game yet, you probably have no clue who the F we're talking about for yeah. half of this. Um if you have any history in, in Norse mythology, you probably already know a lot of these. For some of the cast that we're talking about here, like what are the characters that did stick out to you with it? Kratos, I think, can be very interesting, but he's a fairly he's the quiet protagonist, right? Quiet, stoic. I think that's a very good way to put him. I really, really enjoyed Odin. I really enjoyed Thor. Thor reminds me so much of old angry Kratos, where it's just like yep. no one can touch me. My anger makes me safe. Um and you see that anger. It's funny because Thor is like this mirror from the prior games of watching how his attitude bleeds into the rest of his family and those around him and how it just ruins other people. It's yep. so interesting. I don't know if maybe they meant that or not. Oh, yeah. I'm um, sure they did, actually. But, yeah, it's it's amazing to see to see that because it is so stark. Yep. Yeah. Um, I mean, I think that just the amount of depth that they continued to pull out of Kratos as the game went on. And like you said, especially in, in God of War 2018, like he was like a silent protagonist kind of, right? Like he would speak at times, but it was like one word or one like, very simple phrases. <laughs> right. Whereas in this one, he's having like more full conversations and actually like explaining himself or trying to explain why he's doing the things that he's doing or why he's avoiding to do the things that people are saying he needs to do. Um, cause I, like, that's a lot of the conflict in the game is fighting against the prophecy. Like, you know, they've kicked off Ragnarok and Ragnarok happens in certain ways and he doesn't want to play into that, but he wants to make sure that uh, Atreus doesn't die and wants to protect him, you know? And so I, I think I it just Kratos, like what they did with that character is just like, just baffles my mind considering where he came from originally. I also did also really like Odin. Um, I can understand people um, maybe not liking the characterization of Odin um, just because of how unique it is probably compared to what that character is. But this is a game that has taken unique takes on a lot of different characters in the mythologies that it represents um, and usually paints a lot of the gods, no matter um you know, no matter which pantheon they're from in a pretty negative light. So it was, it was kind of interesting that it wasn't just this antagonist, like a lot of other antagonists are, you know? Um, so I, I really enjoyed that. I mean, I like the actor. I mean, Toby Ziegler is one of my favorite characters in a TV show. Um, and so having that actor be Odin and seeing him do stuff a little bit different than like what that character was like in there, I think was, was, was fun. It was fun to see him in a different vein. Okay, so off the cuff, uh, <clears throat> both of you, give me your top three characters and a short reason why you like each one. Well, sorry to talk about Kratos and Odin. No, no Kratos. No Kratos. Oh, He's no got to be out of it. Give me everybody else. Okay. You get three. Only yeah. three. So I would say Odin. Um, I am going to say Brock. Uh, Brock is 
comic relief at times, but he's also just sort of the matter of factness that's needed at times. Reality. Yeah. <laughs> and and I, I think that was supremely necessary. I think that was supremely necessary throughout this game. Um, and then number three, if I can't use Kratos, um, actually, I think number three would probably be a character we haven't talked about yet. Um, I'm pretty is... sure I'm going to say the same one. So okay. let me jump in here. Okay. Number one for me is Sindri. Love I... Sindri. Love so Sindri. good. This is, uh, yeah. Um, Everyone I... takes their side of the dwarves. <laughs> yeah. I, I love Sindri's, Sindri's secret. I love how that... Uh, developed throughout the game i like the way he changed after the events towards the end of the game and there was just i liked a lot with sindri my number yeah. two character we can come back and debate sindri's merit yeah. more but my number two character heimdall heimdall i loved heimdall's portrayal in this game does a great job of making you hate him exactly yeah, like he was there's no positivity there he was yeah. a great villain and my number three favorite character was anger boda yeah that was my three really why anger boda anger boda is essentially a storytelling device. She's a guide. Atreus was lost. He needed someone to put him on the right path, show him like the way forward. And Angerboda was that. She was a peer. She's another giant. He didn't think there were any other giants left in any of the realms. She's hidden in this hidden forest, and Atreus manages to find her, find a way into this hidden area. And she uh, tells him about the giants. She shows him the prophecy that Atreus and Kratos are fighting against for the entire rest of the game. And she's just... Uh, very positive beacon, a change of pace character. She had very flashy magic that was fun to use when you got to have her accompany you in combat. And I just, I really loved her guy. And she would pop up a couple of times throughout the story, primarily when Atreus was making a decision that she would think is negative. Yeah. So what was, and I think what I really liked about her character was, like, like you said, she was kind of there to kind of deliver this to Atreus, right? This is like, this is what's supposed to happen. These are the prophecies. And I thought it was very meta. Like she delivered yep. that. She she did her job. She did her role in advancing the story. And then Atreus is like, well, what's next for you? And she's like, I don't know. Yep. I'm not in any of the paintings. Yep. I don't know. And so like they tried together yep. to figure out what her destiny was, what her role yeah. was forward. And I thought she was just fascinating. I desperately wanted to know what happened with her. Right. Because it was interesting because she basically said, I must not do anything else worthwhile. Noteworthy. Yeah. And then, like, Atreus, which is the piece of Kratos kind of speaking through him, was just sort of like, well, you know, that doesn't have to be the end of it. You can choose whatever happens now. You know, like, it's not, nothing's written. You can do what you want. And and so, and it's interesting because when, when he leaves her, you don't necessarily know that she really took the words to heart at all. Um, but then as she starts popping up in places, you're like, okay, she's trying to find that, find her way. Um, and, and Atreus kind of gives her a little bit of what that purpose could be to some extent. Um, but I think, I think that's a super interesting character. And it was one I didn't even know was going to exist in the game before it started. And so that's, I think that's maybe another aspect of it that I enjoyed. It's interesting. Ultimately, God of War Ragnarok has this big epic story. Kratos is showing, is having a big showdown with Odin. And is he going to tear apart the entire Norse mythology like he did with the Greek mythology? But occasionally, that tone will shift. Like when Atreus is with Angerboda, it's a section of the game that is very innocent, very mm -hmm. flirtatious between the two of them. And it was, it was very innocent and it felt very heartful. And then other times, the game is very funny. I thought... There were a lot of moments where I thought this game was funnier than I expected. Like, Kratos is constantly smashing chests and, like, getting the loot inside. <laughs> and Atreus finds, it, 
finds a chest and he tries to punch it. And he's like, ow! Yep, that was so great. And so like he has to smash with his bow and it was just a funny little joke. This was yep. the first game where they ever said scrote. Yep. Brock uh, says that. Yep. Brock says that. And just aside from getting worn out with the looting jokes and the allusions to this being a video game and Kratos being a loot hoarder, I thought there were some really <laughs> funny moments that just eased the pressure of this big epic story. Yeah. The fourth wall. Oh, sorry. The fourth wall breaking stuff is pretty great. Like where they somebody comments on why Kratos is running off. And he's like, he just does that from time to time. Uh, one of the fourth walls ones, if you guys never heard it, they reference, uh, pl- was it what was the PlayStation Brawl game? What was their version of Smash Brothers? Oh, All-Stars? Yeah, they, they reference it. Mimir goes, oh, I heard you were once in a, in a battle um, with beasts of all kind and the world's greatest musician. And he's like, I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I didn't catch that. That's it's, awesome. it's one of the canoe conversations, randomly. Uh-huh. Um, but what I was gonna say is, is, is I know that Tom, that you kind of got worn out on this adolescent unrest thing that happens with Atreus, right? You're just like he's a young kid, he's stupid, I'm tired of it. But I think that one theme that we do see with all of those kids, whether it's Angerboda, whether it's Thrud, which is Thor's daughter, whether it's Atreus, you have these three kids, and it's all of them of how do we live up to our parents? Yep. Like it was a thing that all of them dealt with. And it's really cool to see it, just how they're each trying to work through that in that given moment. Atreus wants to be very different than his dad, but he still views his dad as who he wants to live up to be or who yeah. he wants to be, who he wants to be worthy of in his eyes. And it's for the other three young characters that the game follows, all of them are in the same boat. And it's interesting to hear them kind of express that to one another going, hey, like, I just want to be I want to be um, something that brings my family, you know, honor and enjoy. And it's it's interesting to kind of watch them all struggle with that because I think a lot of us have felt that at different times. It's so, something that's very that was very relatable to me. So who are your three? Um, Sindri for sure. Odin, I I've said this before. I was not. I did not like Odin at the initial um, negotiation scene at the cabin. I actually I really disliked his character, but then as the game went on, I really really liked Odin. Um, and then finally, I think it was Thrud. I really liked Thrud. I liked um, just kind of her her fieriness, um, watching her deal with her father. At one point, we find out um, Thor is Thor is in a lot of pain in a lot of different ways, and he is a <laughs> alcoholic, drunken father. And watching his daughter go in, and they made that seem a little bit more real than they had to. Uh-huh. She goes into a tavern, and Thor's hammered, and she's like, "We're doing this again." She's like, "I don't want to have to do this again." Yeah. And it was like, it could have been something that was a little bit more lighthearted, but they made that hit hard. Yeah. They made um, it a very serious scene yeah. about the problems of addiction. I felt like it kind of came out of left field. Like it surprised me how heavy that scene felt within the setting of the game. It was well done. It was very. Yeah. It was like startling, right? It was yeah. just like, oh, wait a minute. There's a big shift. Yeah. Well, like, this is no longer just about Kratos trying to take down Odin. Like they're making yeah. a social commentary right here. And it, well, and it also is like a, it's. Because, you know, you're seeing that from the perspective of Atreus, right? And so he's also getting this perspective as to, okay, like, my dad's kind of a, you know, hard But at least I, (laughs) at least it's not like this, right? And you watch him try to, when he is with Thor, you watch him try to push him. In small yes. ways, yep. um, you actually see with him try to deal with him the way that he deals with his own father, and yeah. Thor will not have it. Yeah, it's it's it's, it's that di- that dynamic was super interesting yeah. when they journey together. Yeah, and so it's just it's it's really interesting how they allow each of those characters to bring different aspects of each other out, and how that helps to flesh them all out as a whole. 
um, which is something that I just you just don't see in a lot of video games and and I think just in media in general, like you don't have the time in movies for characters to have conversations like that. And even in TV shows, usually because of how the scene structure happens, you don't have that luxury to do things like that. Yeah, they let everybody breathe. They yep. give everybody enough space to breathe to make them interesting. Yeah. I think that would be fascinating to watch like a side-by-side time-lapse comparison of the writing process for Venom 2, which we talked about in November-ish 2021, <laughs> uh-huh. versus the team that must have come together to write God of War Ragnarok. Right. Because like two people for Venom 2 versus yeah. 20-ish writers probably on Ragnarok. Like yeah. They had to have a huge army of people. Because I'm just trying to remember the credits image of that. And yeah, it was probably 20-ish people on the narrative sort of uh, slide. Um, it's a lot of people that, that it takes to write that stuff and probably even more that are just writing like the lore things in the, you know, it's just so much. I mean, that's the thing, like AAA games like this take so many people and so much time to make. That's why you get one of them a generation, right? I mean, we're lucky if there's another God of War game on a PS5. And that's why you appreciate just when you watch these things, there is nothing wasted. Maybe it's from Tom's viewpoint, breaking rocks with an axe. Yeah. <laughs> but there is there is so little fat in these games that that doesn't take away from the volume of the game. There's still huge chunks to go through. But really, none of it feels like something that I was just supposed to do to waste time. Well, let's think about the volume for a minute. I knew that we had this podcast coming up. I know that I personally don't have a lot of time for gaming, so I focused entirely on the main story. There was one night where I spent about two hours wandering around Vanaheim trying to do side stuff just to see what the uh, variety was like. I spent 31 and a half hours with this game. Mm-hmm. I did not see the credits roll on it. I am just before the final confrontation. Yeah. I know that there's some big battles and eventually we'll talk hours, about spoilers. Yeah. But it's, a, it's fascinating to me because the original God of War games were like, weren't they roughly four to six hours experiences? Maybe a little bit longer mm, they than were that. Longer but than that. It was like 10 to 12 at max, I would think. Um, 31 and a half hours and I didn't yep. see the credits roll. And like I was pushing. Yeah. No, it's it's at least... A, so I know like the How Long to Beat said like 25 and a half hours. I don't know. You would have been flying. Yeah, you yeah those people are been, better at games than me. You would have had to have been, like, never had to restart at a checkpoint ever. And just, like, flying through everything, making a straight line to every single thing that you had to do. I, I don't know how anybody did that. So my play count on the PlayStation was 39 hours. Um, my save file was 35 hours and 15 minutes. And about and just for clarity that you also mainline this game. You haven't had a chance to do a lot of the side stuff yep. yet, but you do intend to go back. You're yeah, actually I even did less side stuff than you did because uh, I saw from the trophies that you got the orb for Lunda and I did not. Um, yeah, that was my one night of Vanna. Yeah, yep. so that was like one thing that I never got. And you found one. You found all the shields. I missed one of the shields somewhere along the way. I don't know. But anyway, um, but. I know at least three and a half hours were before I turned hard mode off, just restarting checkpoints. Um, that was like most of the difference between my save file and my played time on the PSN um, because I was having to replay things a lot. I had to change my play style with that. And we'll talk about yeah. that in combat, but um, I had to change how I was approaching combat to stop that problem. Mm-hmm. And it, there was a way to go around it, but you had to think about it. Yeah. 
We have about 45 minutes left until we have to have a hard stop. So there are a couple of specific things that I want to pull on here. One more story thing. Freya's arc. We talked about her connection from the first game to the second game. She comes in, she's trying to kill Kratos. Then she coerces Kratos to help her with an important mission. And then she realizes that their purposes are aligned. She winds up working with the group pretty much up until the end of the game. The thing that I wanted to put in front of you guys was her arc is largely grief driven over the loss of her son. She saw her son get murdered in front of her and like, do you buy that you would have been able to get over that to work with Kratos and Atreus to try to take down Odin? I struggled I struggled just a little bit with buying the quick shift. It's like, all right, maybe I'll never forgive you. She specifically says, maybe I'll never forgive you, uh, but maybe I don't have to kill you. So um, I'm trying to remember trying to remember if this was something that actually came up in the game or if it was something I saw someone talking about. But, like, the thing with, like, Balder at the end of God of War 2018, like, Odin was driving Balder to do that stuff, you know? And and while it was, you know, Atreus who had the final shot that killed Balder. Then wore the arrowhead around his neck. And, well, yeah, and then wore the arrowhead around his neck, which is just sort of like, yeah, I mean, yeah, good job trying to hide it when you got to <laughs> talk to her to say, hey, we should work together. You know, even though I killed your son, um, but you think my dad did. Um, but, like, I think eventually it gets to the point where she realizes that, like, Odin's the straw that was stirring the drink, right? He's the one that's been behind kind of where everything swung. And she's not going to be able to stop him herself, otherwise she would have already done it. And so at that point, she needs his help to do that. Um it's hard for me to, I don't, I don't know that I believe it a thousand percent that she would be able to get to the level that she's with at Kratos at the end of the game, you know, of like comfort with like how everything played out or whatnot. Um, but it's hard to say like, you know, when you're in a foxhole with somebody through the biggest battle in the history of existence, like, okay, you know, maybe, maybe it contextualizes things a little bit more too, I guess. I don't know. I would say there was it Svartalheim they were traveling through at that time to the abandoned village. So what? what, what not Svartalheim's the area of the dwarves. Vanaheim, Vanaheim is, is where they were. Yeah, Vanaheim. So that's where they're from. Yeah, as they're traveling through Vanaheim, I think I would have had a bigger problem with it if that that mission didn't take as long as it did because that mission took a chunk of time, and yeah. you can hear how that conversation slowly starts to change direction as it goes it wasn't it wasn't super abrupt to me mm-hmm. um, and I think that helped and also the other part of the thing that just helps so much is that as you go through the game just in general the thing that let me be more believable with that particular relationship you just realize how much Odin has hurt everybody, everybody. individually yep. everybody he messed with the dwarves brutally he, he yep. caused them all to become slaves he killed off and essentially cursed all of the Valkyries he completely chained um uh, freya to midgard um brock and sindri again they're dwarves they've seen what happened to their race like he, he's done mimir like yeah. he's done all of this horrible yeah. to everyone yeah and i think it's more the understanding of what the greater the big bad would be yeah yeah so i think that's that's ultimately what it what it what it gets down to you know i mean he's wronged he's been the one that's wronged everybody even like the majority of his allies right um you know, he's done negatives to them. And so that's like the one thread that they can kind of pull on to unite everybody back together. 
one more story thing that I wanted to pull on. There is a scene on a river where it's a flashback. Kratos is talking to his wife, and they're talking uh, about Atreus, their little baby. It's a very, uh, like, calm, heartfelt scene. And I just wanted to know, Brian, was this, like, your personal <laughs> Like, did no, you skip personal, that? Or? No, personal <laughs> was going with Angraboda. Because uh, Angraboda is in Jotunheim, and it is literally 45 minutes of walking around talking there is no combat there is no nothing it is two teenagers mildly flirting on the back of a hippo Yuck. camel yeah whatever the thing is it was that was hard <laughs> that was hard i my wife kept going like she's like what's your problem like how much longer is this i said that like eight times how much longer is this um i could handle the baby talk don't mind it. Little pillow talk. Never hurt anybody. Um, but the, uh, yeah, no thank you. Jotunheim drove me nuts. Let's talk a bit about the combat. Oh, yes. Kratos has his <laughs> axe from 2018. He has the Blades of Chaos, uh, which were sort of a surprise in 2018. You didn't start with them. And then you get a third weapon that is unlocked probably two-thirds of the way through the game here. Each of those weapons has a light runic attack and a heavy runic attack. There's also an artifact. There are shields to upgrade. Freya has swords you can upgrade. You can upgrade Atreus's bow. There's an amulet that has up to nine slots that you can stick stuff in. The overall upgrade system. Brian, did you enjoy the combat in the upgrade system? And how did you build out Atreus and his friends? Or Kratos and his friends? Because Kratos is the freaking antagonist. I Protagonist. protagonist. I am so good at podcasting. Thank you. I like, I like the combat. Um... Are we going to spoil the third weapon, or should we not talk about it? Uh, I mean, is it super spoilery? Like, it's tied it, to a major story thing. Spoiler alert for the weapons of God of War Ragnarok. You get a spear. Okay. The third weapon you get is a spear that you can throw, and it opens up different traversal options and plays a major story role. Yeah, and, and the part that I liked is that with the combat, each weapon is useful in its own different way. Like, right, the axe is really good against single opponents. Um, it's big, slow, heavy swings, lots of damage. Then we have the Blades of Chaos, which are a lot faster, a lot better for groups. You have more range. You have more ability to control um, kind of where you are in the ground related to the opponents. And then with the spear, the spear is kind of like a jack-of-all-trades. It can be used at a distance. It can be used up close. Um, I And the fact that the, the trees for all of these are actually fairly deep. Kratos um, obviously has three separate trees, but then we also Atreus has his own tree. So does Freya, and even those two, even being a, just you know a, a companion, their trees are actually quite different what they bring mm -hmm. to the table. So I think the combat was a lot of fun. They introduced a lot of they introduced more enemy types. I don't want to say a lot more, because yeah. it doesn't feel like there was a really expansive bestiary. It just mm -hmm. didn't. But how you had to approach some of these fights was a ton more fun the the thing i don't like i don't like how the level up system works i don't like it how the level up system works is that each piece of armor each shield all the things that your your blades when you when you level these things up it adds to your overall level which then can unlock different things for you but i think that's kind of a crappy way to do it yeah it's weird it's just a it's a weird thing it's super slow i mean hell it took me i was level five for like three-fourths of the game and then suddenly i'm like level nine and i never actually no, i never got to nine because my game bugged out um but it, it gives you a lot of different options and it lets you change how you approach it not even counting shields so there's defensive options too it's interesting with the weapons specifically the upgrade materials that you need for the weapons are all tied to specific story points so they really throttle you back to keep you from maybe over leveling your weapons because the 
axe takes a specific resource the blades take a specific resource the spear takes a specific resource and you only get those at certain story checkpoints yeah it it did once and it didn't a, once you get to a level yeah yeah it did and it didn't because like not only do you have your own runic attacks your followers have runic attacks and one of freya's is poison damage so for anybody that's played the game the poison damage is unique for the fact that it will de-level enemies so you can start fighting something that you shouldn't be able to deal with if you poison it hard enough you drop its level and now you can wipe the floor with it because it's a little baby it's a babality it is you, you crush it <laughs> And then the thing on top of that, too, is the spear has a unique ability where it can siphon away elements from enemies. When you throw the spear and you detonate it, it does a elemental damage connected to what you had siphoned off. But if you choose not to do that, the charge doesn't end. So you can siphon off poison off enemies. And now for the longest time, you can de-level everything around you. So now you are killing stuff that is two, three levels above your level and you're pounding it. Um, the only other thing with combat that I wanted to quick touch base on was the shields. Um, the shields allow different things. You A, you have the, the actual um, piece of equipment that the shield mounts to that has its, the rond, which has its own kind of unique sets, which gives you different abilities. But then the shield itself. So you have shields that are great at reflecting, shields that you can run and create a charge with. My personal favorite, I thought I was going to hate, it was the stone wall. So when enemies attack you, there is regular attacks, which can always be blocked. There's yellow circle attacks, which must be parried, so you have to hit the right window. There's red attack rings, which is the, the the next step up from the yellow. Those cannot be blocked in any capacity. No parry, no block. And then there's a blue ring. A blue ring just basically means you have to shield bash them to stop the activity. The stonewall shield allows you to simply block all yellow attacks. And in some of these larger fights, that becomes an yeah. insanely helpful <laughs> thing. And that wound up making hard a lot easier for me yeah, based off that. that. Then, yeah. Yeah, I actually, I never used that. I mean, I switched off a hard by the time I got to that shield. Um, but I never ended up using that one. I used the one that you could, that like would light up as you charged it. Um, I don't know that I ever really used it for that. I just used it to like block. My problem with shielding is I just, I always forget about blocking when I play games like this. It just isn't something that like comes to naturally into my head. And so I have to like constantly remind myself that, like you can't get through some of these fights if you don't block. I think um, uh, I think I finally discovered why you hated Demon Souls with the burning fiery passion. Yeah, because you have to block like Everything. religiously in that game. Ugh. Yeah, and so I think that's. Although ironically, you know, when I broke my sword and I didn't know how to fix it, I was just running around with two shields, one on each arm, and attacking things with shields. Um, that's Sounds how my effective. Demon Souls ended. Yeah, um, but uh, no, the combat's really fun, and I think. Like the the whole fact that you have the trees and then once you use certain abilities enough, then you get to add like a special boon to that ability whenever you do it. Yeah, property. I think that's really neat how the, how they did that, and I don't I don't remember that it got to that level in the first game, right? Uh uh nope and and a lot of those abilities were really useful, like uh, momentum in particular, to be able to build up. There's something called immolation, something that's called uh, permafrost. Yep. These are, uh, when you're using the axe, the blades, or even the spear, maelstrom, you can build up a gauge that you can then pop that lets you use it, and it's much more powerful. Mm -hmm. um, so you can have things that get you to these levels faster. And I found out in the Crucible, where the enemies are endless and your life bar is endless, you can do those moves in the crucible and they count towards the tree. Oh, so, so I that's spent a good way to I spent like forty five minutes in there and just leveled the shit out of everything. Got it. I mean that that's interesting. Um, 
I, I, I guess that makes sense to, to do that stuff there and get those things leveled up to have it's all endless. Yeah, just everything. pound away. Yeah. Brian, I think you spent a lot of time with the axe in the game. Bernsey, what was your weapon of choice? I, I, I would bounce back and forth. And I think there's different points in the game where it forces you to kind of change weapons because certain things, I think certain weapons are stronger against certain enemies. Um, and then it even like the game kind of tells you that at some points because they'll have like this like impenetrable impenetrable bar above them and whatever color it is like you have to use the the other element against that is stronger against yeah, the spears wind so you have fire with the chains you've got axe with the ice and then the wind with the spear yep and so um I don't know. Like I, I would, I would bounce back and forth a lot. I mean, the axe I think was the best at dealing like the most amount of damage per hit. So against like bigger dudes or when I really needed to put in a couple of attacks, like I would go to that. Um, if you have lots of dudes around, at least the blades are hitting a lot of things yep. at once. Crowd control. Um, sure. And then the spear, like, I, I don't know. I really like throwing the spear at things that were farther away and then detonating them on them. Um, to do a lot of damage that way. And so I would I would mix and match between them quite a bit. And your favorite was? I don't know. It's hard to beat the Blades of Chaos. The Blades of Chaos yeah. are pretty great. I, I love the Spear, too. Like, those two are, are neck and neck for me. Uh, they So often you were dropped into the middle of a big group of guys, and there would be yeah. dudes on all sides. So I found myself using the Blades of Chaos primarily, probably... It was 80% early on, maybe dropped to 65, 70% later in the game, but I spent a lot of time with the Blades of Chaos. And they were, uh, my actual favorite was probably the spear because it is so well rounded. You can deal with range, you can deal with close, but I wound up having to choose, I chose runic attacks for each (laughs) weapon more based off the fact of like, specifically how do you deal with crowds because i don't yeah. i don't know if you guys noticed in this one crowds were a lot more of a problem in oh, this yeah. one there's more people hitting you from more different yep. angles than i ever remember in the first that was yeah that one that was the hardest thing with hard mode that was really the hardest thing about hard mode because it seems like things were always behind you and it was so hard to try to get like most of them in like your cone of vision so that you could kind of control it you were just constantly being swarmed and since things are doing more damage and you, they're dropping less, less like healing, it was just it was just really difficult to try to to try to keep up with a lot of Agreed. that. Um, and I didn't find out. Thankfully, I finally found out in the last battle that uh, your runic attacks, using your runic attacks, light and heavy, you still have them on your other weapons. Yeah. <laughs> I did not realize that until the final battle, and it's just oh, like, no. oh, this would have been super nice to know. I just no. expected that like it was on cooldown for everything, but no, it's a separate cooldown for each weapon. That's how it was so in 2018. You keep, keep switching between them and just using your runic attacks mm-hmm. like ad nauseum. By the time you cycle back to your first weapon that you started with, you probably got one of your runic attacks back, and they're super strong. I'm glad you brought that up because I realized that about midway through the game. And so yeah. from that point on, like I was focused on runic and cooldown for my different yeah. upgrades and abilities because occasionally the answer, not occasionally, often the answer is more aggression. And like you just need mm-hmm. to get into the arena and like fire off everything you got and clear out as much as you can, as quick as you can, and then mop up the rest of it. Yeah. And so I would cycle through the weapons, popping mm-hmm. off all six of my runic abilities and then do my, what do they call it? The L1 and circle. Is that, it depends on which, which one you're, you're oh, doing. But yeah. Immolation, yeah. permafrost and maelstorm. But it, no, so you're, it's your, yeah. 
Oh, your talisman. 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 Yes, yeah. thank you. That was the other one. So I'd pop off those seven things. Then I'd try to finish off anything that was weakened, and then I'd see what was left on the battlefield. Do you like how I was trying to think of it, and I was hitting L one and circle with my thumb? Yeah, and if but it had been Casey, he would have had like both hands up here. <laughs> he would have looked like Godzilla trying to climb the building. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I had to reprogram the face button so I could hit him with my nose. If you, uh, I learned how to solder. <laughs> if you didn't listen to our uh, Game Pass Forever rankings, we found out how Casey holds a controller and it answers so many questions about why he maybe struggles with controls sometimes. One of the last things on the combat, too, is um, you can get gems, which give you increased attributes, which that lets you build kind of the way you mm-hmm. want to, whether it's cooldown or strength or whatever it is. Uh, there's something called Bifrost Storm. So what you do is you fire off a runic attack from each of the three weapons, and it essentially causes like almost like a tornado around you, and you can just damage the living piss out of different kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So um, more that's more late-game stuff, but they gave you a lot of different options to handle different situations, which just that kind of flexibility made it fun. One other thing I think we need to touch on with the combat. I, I, I think they did a phenomenal job with combat as a trace. Like, I was coming into it, I was concerned, like, fighting as Atreus, like, how that would feel compared to fighting as Kratos. Um, But I think it's just as fun to play, like, as Atreus, and, you know, it's, it's different how you play it. And you can tell that they're not throwing enemies at you the same way in those battles as they are with Kratos, um, but it's still, it feels different and it's interesting and it's fun and it, it's, it spices up the game. So it doesn't get so samey. Mm-hmm. I agree. That's a great point you brought up. It's actually something that I wrote down too. Like early on, I preferred playing as a trance and playing as Kratos later on. I enjoyed the combat better with Kratos as the toolkit expanded, but Atreus usually had more interesting companions around him too, because he goes off and does his own thing and he's with Angraboda and he's with, uh, Thrud and he's with, does he have other companions besides Thor. those two? He's with Thor. Yeah, that one's awesome. Awesome. So it's, I thought they did a masterful job with the pacing with all of the Atreus sections and using it, bouncing between Kratos and Atreus to give you different perspectives and to drive the story in different ways. Like from a story standpoint, this game is a masterpiece. Yeah. Combat, I like the combat a lot. I'm not quite ready to crown it like the combat as a masterpiece, but there are elements of this game that are just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And, and if I can real add something quick, just how they had tied something. This is a very short. Um, you find out that essentially um, Atreus winds up creating a giant serpent. It's a, it's a portion of the story that winds up happening. But they had such foresight in how they were building the story that in the first game, the world serpent sees Atreus and goes, I recognize you. Something about you is familiar. You find out at the end of the game that as the world serpent's fighting Thor in mythology, the world serpent was knocked back in time because Thor hit him so hard. They They planted that seed in the first game. Atreus created the world serpent like their ability to craft the story is just yeah. nuts and let's let's take a look at that for just a second Atreus is on this mission with Angerboda they're in her crazy grandmother's house and they come across Granny's big big snake that has had its soul siphoned out of it it's still alive but it has no soul so it's just like hanging there and Loki just happens to have a bag full of souls and he's like oh well I'll take this soul out of the soul bag and stick it in this giant snake cool i'm like frick are you doing dude like oh yeah let's just stick a giant soul in a snake but agraboda she questions it too she's like what are you doing he's like i feel like i'm just supposed to do this yeah that's what he says and it's it's part of that's the prophecy right like the prophecy they talk about choice a lot in these games 
and how sometimes they are fulfilling prophecies, sometimes they're not. But they try to have the characters battle about what free will is a lot of the time. Uh-huh. So it's it's a, that part I can see why you were caught up with it. But based on some yeah. of the prophecy stuff, I think it makes sense. He just has a feeling. He's like, I just feel this is right. Well, so and, and I think what's funny and what, what what it seems like we find out is that really. We just need enough people to make enough different prophecies. So then it's like, okay, well, one of them's going to come true. It all works. Like, so something's going to work. QAnon. Just, yeah, throw it against the wall. We'll see what sticks. We have about a half an hour left for our discussion here. One of the things I want to talk about was exploration. This is not an open world game, but it is more of an open zone game, to use a term that Bernsey used off mic with us earlier. There are You travel to these different areas, and you can either pursue like the main objectives, or there are side quests like favors scattered across. There's also hidden secrets and collectibles to find, including upgrades to your rage bar and to your health bar, which are essential yeah did you guys enjoy the exploration i want to start with one strong point here you have when you're playing as kratos you usually have mimir stuck to your belt and you usually have atreus with you and especially early on in the game like you'll find these environmental puzzles and they're like immediately shouting out what you're supposed to do and i'm like those dudes can just stfu so let me try to figure out this puzzle for two minutes i never i guess i never maybe i wasn't paying attention at times but like it didn't seem like it was until I was like stuck for like a moment that they would start saying something or another. Well, maybe I was standing still to try to like get my bearings and like scan the surroundings and try to figure it out. But like, it was so irritating for God, me. I, I felt like it was quick too. Like you just get there. Hey, check out that wheel. It's like, there's a wheel. Give me a minute. Like what? <laughs> yeah. And, and sometimes it wasn't even that helpful. Like there was one with Freya where she's like, I think you need to do this thing over here. And like, she's standing like looking off a cliff. And so like I go and I look off the cliff. I'm like, there's a beautiful landscape out yeah. there. What a scene. What the hell do you want me to do? There is one in the abandoned village, even in the post game. She keeps saying, we'll get to a point. She's like, what's that over there? I have no clue what she's talking about because she's looking at the village. There's like eight structures. I don't know what she wants. But though there were times where there were times where, you know, as somebody who likes to try to scour stuff as much as I can, there were times where I'd miss something and someone would be like, I think there was something back there. And I double back, and it's like, oh, yeah, there's something here. Thank Thanks. you for that tip. Yeah. Bernsey, how did this fit? You do love to scour the environment. Typically with a game, you want to find everything in an environment before you move on to the next environment. Was yeah. this easier than, say, an open world game for you? Did you enjoy the exploration of these more bite-sized areas? Not I mean, that yeah. for, for me, I think having it be something that's more focused and you, you don't have as much branching paths or, like, if you do, they all kind of, like, circle back into each other or backwards, and then it's like, okay, I'm back here. Um, I enjoy like mapping that out in my head as I go through it and trying to find the nooks and crannies. Like you start to learn to speak the language that the level designers were speaking where it's like, oh, okay, I bet you going here is where I'm going to find the chest. And then that's the route that I needed to go to. So after a while you start to like kind of pick out where some of those things are, but they still held some things or hid some things relatively well that it's like you really had to kind of pay attention to the environment to figure that out. Um, and I think like the, like the, the Nornier chests, um, have enough variation in them. Um, and some of them, you don't unlock the ability to open them up until later. And at least they'll tell you pretty quickly. Yeah. I don't think that's going to work. Thank yet. God. Cause yeah. otherwise I would spend forever. <laughs> Just like, yeah. 
I still enjoy finding the Nornir <clears throat> chests, and I had to look a couple of those up because time was of the essence for uh-huh. me here. I was trying so hard to get to the end of it. I hate looking things up for games. Like, the reason I'll probably never platinum anything is because I don't like walkthroughs. I don't like being told what to do. Like, if I can't figure it out on my own, I feel like I can live without seeing it. I think this game will help with that because when you look at the map, there's two ways you can either look at a realm. Globally, it shows you all the objectives and what you have found. And then when you're on the map itself, you can go region by region and it shows you what things are in the region, what you have. Yeah. And that made it a lot easier to track down the stuff you didn't have. You're like, okay, I don't have to go everywhere blindly in this world. Yeah. I know it's on this this lost beach shore. Okay, go there, find it. Yeah. And that helped a ton if you're someone that wants to do it yourself. Yeah, and it'll also, if there's certain things that you can't do yet, it'll say undiscovered. So it's like, okay, I know there's stuff that I'll have to come back for. Yep. Which also was the good moment for me to be sort of like, okay, I don't have to scour this because if I want to do everything in the zone, I know I have to come back at some point. So there's no point in like, just mindlessly trying to figure out how to get to this one thing because I'll be back. So, Brian, how many things did you end up looking up to platinum this game? Um, there was definitely like two of Odin's ravens I could not find. One of which was in Vanaheim. It was near the lost village, and like the only way you could have seen it is through a hole through a tree. Um, there was no way I was going to find that. Now, I have in my in my living room I have a surround sound, and when you're near Odin's raven, you'll hear it caw. And so I could sometimes figure out where it was spatially by hearing that. Um, but that one was just far enough away. I just I was yeah. not catching it up with the ambient background. So I, the things I had to look up were probably few and far between. But definitely Odin's Ravens um, and probably a couple of the flowers that you had to find too, I think. Yeah, I never did anything with the flowers. That's, um, it'll be late game. I had to look up. I can't remember the name of the character, but the one that we were talking about earlier, the last boss that I fought on hard. I needed to look up what some people were saying or like things to try against it. Um, And even that, it was just sort of like, you're not really telling me what I need to know. So I just had to figure it out. And boiling it down to one word answers, exploration in God of War Ragnarok. Fun? It's fun. I'll say bite-sized. So I guess I have a two-word answer. That's that's what I'd say. Hyphenated. Yeah. It's one word. Fun. Fun, good stuff. Com- story, masterful. Combat, yeah. really good. Perhaps masterpiece. Exploration, pretty fun. Characters, we talked a lot about them uh, already. Heimdall, again, I just thought was masterful. He's such a hateable antagonist. Yeah. He's a heel. And, uh, Big you old def- Richard. You yeah. eventually fight him. And just a personal anecdote from that, I thought that the point was that you couldn't beat him because, like, you build the spear to fight Heimdall. And, like, I tried stabbing him with the spear and he just dodged, dodge, 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 dodge. <laughs> I'm like, oh, well, apparently I can't beat him. So I just let him beat the crap out of me. Game restarts. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that was not the answer. That was not the solution to that puzzle. No, and that fight, that fight's really gratifying because, like, particularly once he realizes he's vulnerable, you see a different side of him. And yeah. that was really fun. Yeah. Um, again, it's... I think everybody loves someone who's really arrogant getting put in mm-hmm. their place. And, and Heimdall is an absolute jerk. And I liked him before he got put in his place. Like I, I liked that he was on to Loki and that he read Loki's intentions and that he was trying to, from his perspective, he was trying to protect Asgard. And like, I can, he had very strong intentions and I can mm-hmm. appreciate that. Like, yeah, he was, he was a jerk and he was someone that you love to hate, but I thought he was just a really interesting character. And I'm so glad that I got to interact with him. I loved when him and Thor were kind of facing off for a half second and Thor was like, back off. He's like, you think you can, what would you do that you can stop me? And Thor was like, look deep in my eyes. You tell me. And he just stops immediately and backs off. I love that. 
Good stuff. I mean, you guys love Sindri. Um, yeah. Well, Sindri has a lot of growth. He's the best character. You have best character is strong. Yeah. So, like, my big thing with Sindri, without, like, getting too deep into spoilers or things like that, is that the thing that I dislike about Sindri is the fact that he doesn't understand that the main things that he... Like, the, the main problems that he caused, he caused for himself. He likes to deflect and blame it on every single other person in the game. But but really, like, he only has himself to blame, and I feel like he's too stupid to realize it. But he blamed himself for Brock, that didn't he? That's the thing that I'm frustrated with with him. He blamed himself for Brock, didn't he? No, I mean, no. Like I thought he did. Like... Like, where everything ends up at the end of the game with Sindri, he hates Atreus with a fiery passion and blames, or at least the way that he lashes out at Atreus, he blames him for basically everything that happened. Well, and doesn't and doesn't blame himself for the role that he played in where everything kind of wrapped up. And, um, and granted, I think there's some things that he does at the end that are good, but he's like acting like a, he's acting more like a moody teenager than Atreus ever did. And it's just kind of like, okay, dude, like, I get it. And I get you're going through the grieving process, but I don't know. He was the character I liked the least at the end of the game. It's funny. Now you're calling Atreus Atreus, just like Brian does. Why do you call him Atreus? Because it's a neat way to say it. I don't know. I'm just wrong. I I don't have a real (laughs) reason. Fair. Uh, If we're thinking about one of the same scenes, Atreus goes to talk to Sindri after a certain event happens, and uh, he... Sindri lashes out hard yeah. and pushes back really hard on it. Kratos said, you grieve how you grieve. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that was, I thought that was interesting. Like Kratos was yeah. accepted that he was in the grieving process. <laughs> uh, maybe didn't appreciate the things that were said, but he understood the place where Sindri was coming from. Yeah. There's more. There, more there's, that I haven't seen yet. There's more that you haven't seen. Yeah. Yet okay. That yeah. I'm referring to. Yeah. You'll get more later. And so, on. so that's, that's, that's the thing. Um, and it just, it just kind of like frustrated me a little bit. And granted, there might be more in like the post game stuff that maybe kind of helps to leave that setting on something that's maybe a little bit more satisfying. But to me, that just sort of left me frustrated with that character. Um, like at the point that I've left it at the game, which is right before any of the post game stuff. And so, so that's, that's the only thing that's like, that's the only knock that I have, like the real knock I have with Sindri. And moving on to Odin for a minute, as we are running a little bit short on time here, there's one thing that I really enjoyed in the game. When Odin sends someone on a mission, he sends his ravens and basically teleports them. And there's a really cool transition where like the ravens are swirling around you. Brian, you noticed a really intricate detail about that. He's got, so Odin's got uh, two main birds. One's on his left arm, one's on his right arm. They're actually tattoos. Hugin and Mugen. Thank you. Of course, the one that knows the lore. Why mm-hmm. wouldn't it be Joe? So the part that was super interesting was is that if he has the birds out in the realms and they're doing his business, the, the tattoo's gone. And then when they return, they return again as a tattoo to his arm. So you can always tell if they're there or they're gone. It's just it's a really light indicator visually. Um, but I thought that was really fascinating that that was just this tiny little detail. Mm-hmm. And again, when we talk about AAA games, it didn't have to do that. Yep. Most of us would never have noticed it, but then when you watch this stuff again, and you're like, "Oh my God, they're they're the love and care that they put into this mm-hmm. is nutty." Yeah, no, it's it's neat, it's interesting, or kind of like when you're when you're in Asgard and everybody everybody has like a bedroom, but Odin doesn't. 
it's just his study. Yep. And that's it. And it's just kind of interesting because it's like, okay, well, that fits the character because he probably doesn't sleep, or if he does, he sleeps at his desk. Forever. Forever. We have about 15 minutes left. At this point, we are going to dive into spoiler discussions. We're going to talk about the end of the story. We're going to talk about post-game content. Uh, so if you want to avoid spoilers for God of War Ragnarok, this is a great time to check out. Next month, we're going to break down director Taiki Waititi. 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 Tidy Whitey. Tidy Whitey. <laughs> Interesting. Phoenix and Billy will I'd like be like to be here. on that one. <laughs> yeah, you'd love to be snug in that one, wouldn't you? <laughs> Phoenix and Billy will be here to discuss his individual films and to rank his overall directing catalog. Thank you so much for listening. Review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. Thanks for listening. For those of you who are still with us, this is our spoiler discussion for God of War Ragnarok. Now, I am just before the end of this game. I tried very hard yeah. to see credits roll. Didn't quite work out. 31 and a half hours into the game. What did I miss? What does this story, does the story of this epic scale with the shifting tone, with the characters that we largely love, does this come to a satisfying conclusion? I mean, I think it does. And, and granted, there's still like... So the interesting thing about it is after you kind of get through the final battle and you see sort of everything that happens, you know, um, and then you're kind of in this sort of safe house area um, with the people that have survived. Right. Um, But then it starts to like drop little things as to, oh, this is this is some stuff that we need to do now. You know, Uh, you know, Gana is out there and which is uh, a fight you will have to do. And then there's just so it's like it starts to pepper these things in. It's like, okay. Um, and then you get kind of to the end of like the cinematics and the story stuff that gets laid out there. Um, and like we were talking about earlier, you know, Kratos kind of has his path now and Atreus slash Loki has his path. Um, and they both kind of are going to head off in their different directions, but there's like, there's certain things that it says, it's like, okay, we can do this and we can do this and we've got this. And it's just like, I think that's neat that like we've wrapped up the main through line of what this story is. But you can go back and do some of the things that you didn't finish before. So you could do like the favors that you didn't unwrap. Which I intend to. I yep. very, I did not get to enjoy this game the way I wanted to because I was pushing mm-hmm. so much for the main story. When I play a game, I love to wander around and touch everything and see what the world has to offer. It is very yeah. difficult for me to mainline a story. And I tried so hard to do it for this. And I really want to go back and check out those other favors. Yeah. It's, it's interesting to me because whenever I, because that's my proclivity too with games. Proclivity, but, good word. Yeah, but it, it's what's what's interesting to what I always it always feels like to me is like we've got like the main story is always this thing and there's always urgency with the main story, right? Like it's always telling you, okay, we got to go do this now. Like we got to take care of this now. Um, and then it's like, yeah, I know that, but then I really need to try to find these flowers, all right, right? Um, or or you know, and so like. With this game, I, th- I feel like I sort of, once I bought into, like, what was happening and where the story was going, like, I didn't feel as bad. The only time I felt bad was, and I can't remember his name, starts with a B, but the guy that jumps Bernard. off the... Bernard. Sh- yeah, Bernard. It's not Bernard, but Bernard, Bernard. Jumps off the flying boat. Beowulf. Jumps off the flying boat to tackle two dragons. Um, basically, and... Oh, yeah, that dude, the Traveler. Yeah, the Traveler wasn't so trying to kill you. I followed the dog... And got to the point to, uh, like the 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 crater, right? And then it's like, oh, you see, like the thing go up again, and the dragon's over there, and it's just like, wow, we probably need to help him right away. And that was the only time where it's like, okay, I really got to keep moving, 
I feel bad for leaving this side story here and just like bolted to the mystic gateway and jumped away. So I'm really eager to go do that because I think the dragon fight sounds like it's going to be really cool. The, um, the crater is probably the area where there is a, the most open zone that you can be in. Gotcha. That there's a lot to it. Now, post game wise, the cool thing is, is there's, there's definitely combat skill checks at the end of the game. Yeah. They give you some of the hardest enemies you can possibly fight. So the Valkyries were in the first game and this game is the Berserkers. Not only do you get to fight a Berserker King, the one that is the hardest of all them to beat. Um, maybe, maybe not. And then, um, and Nah, G-N-A, she is the Valkyrie Queen, and that, that is the true skill check of the game. Both of those were awesome. Um, do you want to step out of the room while I kind of cover some really big stuff? Sure. Okay. Tom, are you One okay with this? You go, oh my goodness, oh, I just had a question queued up for you. What is the deal with, what was the, th- I touched a portal, I touched a portal, and a freaking centaur ran out and started massacring oh, yeah. me. What is the deal with that? Where do, where do the centaurs come from? The hunters? Yeah. Uh, so they they exist in uh, Vanaheim, and then I think they're in a couple different realms as well. Svartalfheim was the one that I found. Yep, and they're they're essentially like mini bosses, and that's yeah. not the only place you're gonna you're going to encounter them either. Yeah. Um, but it's always funny because anytime there's those little like portals, realm you, the realm tears. Yeah, our tears. Yeah. yeah, you have no clue what's coming out because like sometimes it's nothing, sometimes yeah. it's a horrible moment. <laughs> the first time it was like, oh, what are the dragons you have to find for uh, for uh, Ratosker? Which we never brought up before this, but Ratatosker was awesome. Talking squirrel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and it was great. And then all of his little, like, severed off, like, elements of his psyche, which were funny, too. Yeah, Ratatosker was great. Um, but, yeah, that was the first one I found. I was just like, oh, okay. And then, like, I no, I found another one, too. And it was just, like, I pulled, like, gear out or something. It's just like, huh, I remember these always being a pain in the dick in the first game. Yeah, like, I was real apprehensive. Like, I saved right before I touched it. And then the next one was one of those centaurs. It's just like, oh, okay, yeah, they're a pain in the dick still. (laughs) Bernsey, before you step out, any any other things you want to address about God of War before you... Uh, talk super spoilers and so i was I, I don't know i was supremely happy with like how everything wrapped up um i i did think like the final the final battle was the one i had to restart the most on on the normal mode um it was it was it was it wasn't like it was hard it's just so much is coming at you so much of the time that it's like you have to like be dodging at the right times and then knowing when you need to attack and with which weapon, like, I don't know. It was just exacting. Um, I didn't get frustrated. Like I never really got frustrated on normal mode. It was really just on hard mode. I got like incredibly frustrated. I got frustrated on double Drekkies and, uh, leaving Leaving Muspelheim. I did get frustrated on normal mode. That's for sure. Um, I think that was the only real spot. Um, but I think, yeah, the, like, Everything with the chapter that you're about to do, I think is so awesome because it gives you like the grand scale of the battle, um, you know, that you're basically kind of like a lot of war movies do where you're like following the one perspective through all of this crap that's happening. Um, and just like just the crazy set pieces that are popping up, different characters that you're like, you know, coming by as they're doing all these different things. Um, and they do a lot of they do they do so much really well with like tying so many people to different parts of that final battle. Um, I think it's just really, it's just really great. And then like the conversations you get to have kind of after that, um, I think are meaningful and do a really good job of kind of wrapping everything up. Um, which is, which is why it's like the game could have ended right there and I probably would have been satisfied. But the fact that there's 
more to jump into after that. And more story. And yeah, because it, it definitely set up a couple of story beats where it's just like, yes, I really want to go to this thing. I really want to see what's going to happen here. You had that sense of dread as you were approaching God of War Ragnarok. Is yeah. it safe to say that it lived up to your expectations and oh, lived up to your hopes? A thousand percent. Like this, I mean... Best video game that exists in Earth right that's now? That's always hard. It's. I mean, it would have been my game of the year last year, right? Now, granted, I haven't played Elden Ring yet, um, but I don't know with my... Pro, you know, with, with, with how I approach games and what I like in games, I, I actually think I'll like Elden Ring, but I don't foresee myself... Going crazy. Saying that it's going to be better than what God of War Ragnarok was. So. All right. Well, you get the heck out of here. Brian, we have eight minutes before you have to leave for a family engagement. Tell me everything that is super spoilery about God of War Ragnarok. Okay. Uh, so we get to the end of the game, and what we actually find out in the post game is Tyr is alive. Oh, uh, fascinating. Yes, we go. There's a prison that you will go to, and you will find Tyr rotting alone in a basement. And you kind of start to realize that maybe that Odin's only able to take on the form of, of people that are still alive or creatures that are still alive even. So Tyr is released and um, they were chatting with one of the directors of Santa Monica Studios. And throughout the game at that point, Tyr is going to show up in different spots doing different kinds of physical motions. It almost looks like Tai Chi or yoga. And there's a point where he's meditating and he just kind of appears in these areas. He'll say a line or two and then that's it. Um, but the director did indicate that these are hints as to where the next realm, the next the next mythology that it's moving towards. So they're they're also thinking possibly that with Angraboto and her ability to throw colors, things like that, plus on one of her visuals on the wall, um, there is, uh, it looks like almost like Vishnu on one of the uh, murals. So there's a possibility that we could be looking at Hindi culture or something of that nature. Um, just fascinating. So not only do we have that... Um, Atreus has now gone off to go do his own thing. Um, Kratos has gone off to do his. Um, well, how do those divergent paths work? Like, what is so pressing that Kratos is willing to let go of his son, who he's guarding over like a helicopter parent for this entire game? At this point, he realizes, particularly the kid has decided that he has to go and do something to kind of restore the gods. There's not the gods, the giants. So he's got the marbles. He's like, hey, I have to go do this. Um, and I got to do it by myself. And at that point... Kratos understands. He's like, hey, this is something where, like, I've been... Kratos said essentially forever that he's been training him so that no, he wouldn't have to protect him. And that's the point where he just kind of puts his hands up and goes, okay, go do your thing. Um, so between those two things, we're not always sure where the story is going. A really interesting thing that came out as the game went, which I didn't even talk about. I don't know if Joe picked it up, but this isn't the main story. Um, Mimir is Puck from Midsummer's Night Dream. At huh. one point... He's talking about how he used to have another name before Odin came to him. And he refers to how he used to work for a queen and uses her name. It's the fairy queen from Midsummer's Night Dream. And that means that he was Puck. That's That would be the realm of Excalibur and King Arthur. So that could be another place that they're going to in time. Um, but the fact that Asgard has been utterly destroyed, the fact that the relationship up to this point... Um, with so Kratos uh, ultimately fulfills his destiny of taking down this pantheon of gods, just like he did in Greek mythology. He ripped through all, all those gods, and now he destroys all of the Norse gods. Right, and the question was: is like, did did his wife create this prophecy? Because she's the one that helped create some of the giant prophecies. Did she marry Kratos because she knew that he would do this? But 
I think you start to realize that she had just hoped that Kratos and their son would find their own way through all of this. Um, and I love how the game ends with Sindri not having his relationship mended with the group. I think that's a beautiful thing. It it absolutely hurts. But this game is so good at pushing you in one direction, surprising you, ripping your heart out, and then you're looking back and questioning some of the decisions you made yourself. Um, it's just such a tremendous job. Masterpiece? Masterpiece. I, I get why people would choose Elden Ring as game of the year, right? I get it. There was that world was so open, that world was you could there was something interesting just everywhere. It was so creative. And it also brought a huge number of new fans into FromSoft style games. Absolutely. Like FromSoft games have always had a following. They've always been popular, but Elden Ring made them so mainstream. Can you remind me of the awards that Elden Ring won and the awards that God of War Ragnarok won? I think uh, Elden Ring won Best Director. It won Game of the Year. It won, I believe it won Best Music. God of War won, uh, Kratos was the Best Actor. God of War won Best Story. Um, I think there's one more too. I, and I've said it a million times before. There's, Elden Ring had no right to be in Best Narrative. None. That's God of War is a total package I like more because it's this marriage between combat and a truly engaging human story. Elden Ring, for as beautiful as it was, so little narrative that you can even pull. Did you hear that there was a lot of review bombing on God of War Ragnarok? Yeah, dude. The, the nerds that were behind Elden Ring were pissed. Uh, the uh, They had dropped it uh, over the course of going up to the Video Game Awards. Um, there had been almost a thousand negative review scores for God of War um, Ragnarok. Um, and it was just people, like, actually some of the stuff they were saying was actually kind of nasty. Um, but it just shows what happens. Fanboys, we are gatekeepers and we are just toxic at times and in our, in our worst places. Especially you, my troll friend. You better believe it, buddy. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. Anything else you want to discuss about God of War Ragnarok before we wrap up here, B? No, I, I just, I think if, if it's a game where, if it's something where you want to get into it, I you would. You have to play 2018 first. I right? really would. And if, you, if you're if you dead set on not, you have to at least understand the story of it because there's so much that matters. But please, if it is something you want to do, play 2018. Um, if you are lucky enough to be a PS5 owner, this was one of the PS5 games, 2018, that was included in the free games with the PS5. You got it right in front of you. Play it. Love it. And then I'll see you after Ragnarok, and we're going to see where this thing goes. Well, that is our show on The God of War. Next month, we're going to break down director Taiki Waititi. Phoenix and Billy will be here to discuss his individual films and to rank his overall directing catalog. Thank you so much for listening to Outside is Overrated. Please review us on your favorite podcast platform and consider supporting our show on Patreon at patreon.com slash OIO. For Joey at Hobbybox Burns on Twitter and for Brian at Not on the Internet, I'm Tom Sidlogic at Tom Sidlogic OIO on every social platform. We'll talk to you next month. Stay inside, kids. Oh, Brian, you, I, you, let me reset that up here. You, you, <laughs> you.